optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now would have seen an appropriate time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably athletic greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com slash TFS. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Why, hello there, ladies and gentlemen. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. You may also be listening to this on the usually shorter-form Tribe of Mentors podcast. The guest this episode applies to both equally, Gretchen Rubin. She is in the book, Tribe of Mentors, and has lots of tactical, practical advice to offer, but we take it a little longer in format this time around. And we really do a deep dive into experiments in creativity, happiness, creative flow, daily routines, etc. Gretchen Rubin, maybe you've heard of her. Twitter, Facebook, at Gretchen Rubin, R-U-B-I-N, GretchenRubin.com. Who is Gretchen? She's the author of several books, including the New York Times bestsellers, Better Than Before, The Happiness Project, Happier at Home, and most recently, The Four Tendencies. Her books have sold nearly 3 million copies worldwide. That's a lot of copies in more than 30 languages. On her popular podcast, Happier with Gretchen Rubin, she discusses good habits and happiness with her sister, Elizabeth Craft. They've been called the click and clack of podcasters. Her podcast was named one of iTunes' best podcasts of 2015 and the Academy of Podcasters' best podcast of 2016. 
Fast Company named Gretchen to its list of most creative people in business, and she's a member of Oprah's Super Soul 100. So without further ado, please enjoy my wide-ranging conversation with Gretchen Rubin. Gretchen, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to be talking to you. I have been looking forward to this for some time. Many, 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 many of my listeners and fans have been requesting that you come on the show, and here we are. So thank you for making the time. Oh, I'm, I'm, that's great to hear, and I'm so glad to get the chance to sit down and talk to you. So I thought we would begin actually with a, a question that's been on my mind related to a tweet of yours, which mm. is, is not scandalous. Uh, <laughs> it, I'm just hoping to hear you elaborate a bit on where it came from, which is a notebook with I wish I could not wish, agree or disagree. And oh, yeah. where does that come from? What is the origin of that? Well, I love koans, you know, which are these um, statements that Zen Buddhist monks will meditate on mm -hmm. in order to free themselves from the bounds of kind of rational thought. So this is what is the sound of one hand clapping um, and things like that. And so I'm always looking for things like that, or kind of paradoxical statements and uh, that get you thinking. And that was one I wish I could not wish was one that really... Uh, was an idea that occurred to me that I was like, uh, yeah, I do. Sometimes I wish that I could not wish. Um, and uh, um, it's an interest. It's like one of these things that the more you think about it, your thoughts kind of twist and turn. And that's what I like about Cohen's. Now, what prompted the desire to lose the ability to wish? Is it to the expectations minus reality equals happiness type of equation and not having that forward seeking expectation or desire or was it something else like what was what were the circumstances that surrounded you not uh, or considering the the desire to lose your ability to wish well actually you know i'm sort of deeply within the romantic tradition so i'm a big believer in desire and attachment as um as part of life so i don't i'm not a person who really wants to disengage from from desire. Um, but certainly I have times where my wishing, uh, I wish I couldn't wish. Um, I wish I wasn't wishing. Um, but for me, it was really more of a thought exercise than something that I, that passionately rang true for me personally. Um, I'm, I, I feel like I, I wish that I wish, sometimes I wish that I had more wishes, um, that I felt more strongly towards things. Cause I think there's a lot of power and beauty that comes from that. Um, yeah. Where did, where did the, we're going to bounce around a lot since I'm, I'm strictly, non-chronological. Yeah, let's be, let's be non-linear. Let's do it. Uh, how did the law end up entering your life? I mean, it seems like you had some family with uh, legal backgrounds, but was there a point where you decided you want to wanted to pursue that as a profession? Oh, I wish that I there had been that moment. Yeah, you're right. My father's a lawyer, very happy lawyer. So I had a model in my 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 life of a someone who was very happy as a lawyer. But really, I just drifted into law. You know, I was good at research and writing. I was good at taking tests, and you know, I thought about law school. Well, um, you know, well, I'll just take the LSAT and see how I do. Well, I'll just apply to law school and see where I get in, and I can always change my mind later. And it's a great preparation for a lot of different things. And you know, um, I'll keep my options open. And I never really sat down and thought, you know, I would really like to be a lawyer. And the fact is, law school is really great if you're a person who really wants to be a lawyer. Um, and the people I know who are happy lawyers, um, and 
they wanted to be lawyers. Um, but I went to law school just because I sort of didn't know what else to do with myself. And uh, I had a great experience in law school. I got, I, I, I'm glad that I went, but I certainly just drifted into it um, because of a lack of any other uh, aim. And it just, it just seemed like something safe to like a safe thing to do um, that would maybe help, help me get more clarity. That you, you were very successful in law, as far as I can tell. I'm no legal professional, but I mean, you were the editor in chief of the Yale Law Journal. Uh, you won some very prestigious prizes. Uh, how were you, why were you as good at navigating that system as you were if you were not passionate about it? Well, it's interesting because, um, yeah, the word say, saying that I drifted into law school kind of sounds like it's the lazy, kind of easygoing way. And one of the things I found about when people drift is it doesn't mean that it's easy or that you're not working hard. So I worked really hard. And like you said, you know, I was editor in chief of the Law Journal. I went on to clerk for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. Um, I worked really, really hard at it. Um, but at a certain point, I, you know, I sort of did the obvious next thing, you know, like, oh, oh, I'm graduating from law school. I'll apply for a clerkship. Oh, I got one clerkship. I'll apply to the Supreme Court. And then I got to a point where it's like, well, now what are you going to do? And I thought, I don't really know. I don't, I mean, I, I could, there's all these law jobs that I could try for, um, but none of them really appealed to me. Um, and that's when I started thinking about the fact that you know, maybe I needed to think about going in a different direction. What what directions did you – can you place us in terms of your life as to where you were, what you were doing? Was there a particular evening or a conversation or dinner or event that catalyzed you thinking, you know, I don't want to continue on this path. I, I want to consider mm. other options. Was there a particular straw that broke the camel's back or moment? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I'm really lucky because, um, and I think this is true for a lot of writers, but actually for many people in many different kinds of professions, something started pulling me um, very, very hard and, and writing began to pull me. And what happened to me was I had the idea, this was probably the most critical thing that happened. I had the idea that eventually be, it did turn into the first book that I ever published. So I was taking a walk um, under my lunch hour and I was looking up at the Capitol Dome, you know, all white against the blue sky. And I thought, well, and just sort of as a, as kind of a, you know, a mental, just kind of fun game to play with myself. I said, what am I interested in that everybody in the world is interested? And I thought, well, power, money, fame, sex, and all of a sudden it was like power, money, fame, sex. And to me, this like locked into my mind as this kind of unified idea. And I became obsessed with trying to research and understand and analyze and write about power, money, fame, sex. And this is something that happens to me often. I will often become obsessed with subjects and do tons of research. So this is not, that was not something unusual that, that happened, has happened to me my whole life. It's like my favorite thing about myself, actually. Um, but this was like unstoppable. I was spending all my free time working on this. And at some point I was like, this is the kind of thing that a person would do if they were writing a book. Um, I'm just doing this in my free time, but this is the kind of thing somebody would do to write a book about it. And, 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 and slowly I began to think, well, maybe I should write a book about it. And, um, I literally went to the bookstore and got a book called something like how to write and sell your nonfiction book proposal. I got the book and just followed the directions. And, um, and part of my thinking was, you know, um, 
I've come to a point where I'd rather fail as a writer than succeed as a lawyer. And I need to try. I need to try and fail or try and succeed, but I need to like to do it. And But I, I think I was lucky because I knew what I wanted. Not only did I want to be a writer, I wanted to write this specific book. And so there was immense clarity about my purpose. Sometimes I think when people, and I, I, I bet you've seen this too, where people know they don't know, they don't want what they have, but they don't know what they want. And so they're kind of in sure. that, what color is my parachute kind of thing. And that's hard. And for me, it was almost like, I can't help but write this book. Um, I feel com- a compulsion to write this book. So why don't I see if like, this is my next thing. And then, and then that's, and then that was how I made the switch was from that book on. Writing. It strikes me, at least for me, can be very difficult, even if you have a deep desire to write about a given subject. The, pr- the actual process of writing is easier for some, uh, certainly quite <laughs> hard for many. Uh, I would say that I'm a, a very slow plotting writer. Uh, and where I'm going with that, I guess, is when did you actually cut bait and quit your job? Mm. Was it, did, it were, had you already sold the book? Uh, where you had you already sold it and you're partway through writing it, or did you just kind of throw caution to the wind and quit before the proposal had been sold? At, at what point did you actually stop the salary, so to speak, from the from the job right. from the from the legal profession? Well, it it actually um, it was it was like the catalyst was other changes in my life. So um, I had I married my husband, who I met in law school. That was one of the benefits of going to law school. Um, and he was working as a lawyer too. And we were living in Washington D.C. And um, we were getting ready to move back to New York. And he took a he took a class in financial accounting. And he didn't apply for a law job. He applied for a job in finance. And I didn't apply for a law job. I was just like, now I'm in at work full time on trying to get an agent, trying to write this proposal. And so for us, it was like the move from D.C. was like, okay, we're leaving that behind. And I remember we got to New York and at one point we got a letter from the Bar Association of New York because we were both members of the New York Bar saying, you owe us bar fees, which are quite, quite, quite heavy. And I said, Jamie, you know, should we play, should we pay our bar fees and just like keep it up? And he's like, are you kidding? No. And I'm like, yeah, we're, we're cutting that out, you know? Um, and so that was like, so it was really made easy for me because this physical move corresponded with like, everything's different now. We're switching total professions. Um, my, my whole routine is different. My aim is different. My aim now really at that point was to get an agent, um, which is really harder probably than getting a book contract. Um, and I had no idea what I was doing. Um, but so that's, that's when it was, it was like, it was like, I'm going to work up until this time, but when I'm in New York, I'm not going to look for a law job in New York. I'm not going to look for any other job. This now is my full-time profession, um, is to try to get published. And when you published that first book, looking back at it now, what were, what were some of the key lessons learned through the process of, searching for the agent to publishing that first book and I suppose going on the road and trying to promote that first book. Were there any particular uh, life lessons or lessons learned looking back that then informed later decisions for you? Well, you know, it's funny. I, you know, I, I, I talked to several people before I ended up with my agent who is like, you know, the, one of the most important people in my life now, Christy Fletcher, who's like this huge influence on my career. And it's this complete love connection. But I talked to other agents before I met her. And one agent said something at the time I thought was preposterous. But in hindsight, I've begun, I, I have learned that 
what she meant and why she was right. She said, you have too many ideas on each page. And I was like, there's no such thing as too many ideas on a page. Like what we want here is lots and lots of ideas. And I thought she was just like so wrong. But now I realize like one problem with my writing, and this is something that I fight all the time, is density. It's like I want to just cut, cut, cut and only have dense. But you can't read a book like that. You have to have humor. You have to have connective tissue. You have to have pacing. You have to have high, you know, you have to have you. It has to have breath in it. And um, and so that's one thing that I, I wish that I could go back to her and say, um, I, I, I understand now the wisdom of what you said. And, and I think about it often and even now in my writing. And it's, you know, many, many years later. As to the publishing process, I mean, I would just say to anybody who's trying to get published um, traditionally, you know, obviously now a lot of people can self-publish, um, which is a whole other route. Um, getting an agent is hard. That is really, really hard. Don't think that that's just like a quick, easy step. Um and that writing the book is the hardest part. I think, um, you know, uh, getting an agent and, and that, that I think probably for many people is the most challenging um, stage of traditional publishing. I don't know. What do you think? What do you think is the most? Huh, that's a good question. I mean, I was turned down by eh, three or four agents before signing with my agent, Steve Hanselman, uh, who's still my agent. And yeah. then... I was subsequently turned down by 27 publishers. So, yeah, uh, you showed them that's yeah, vindication. Nice. Yeah, so You're like right up there with Madeline Langle, right? She had like 32, I think. Oh for man, something. Yeah, and uh, you know, I think that there are, you know, just because a book is rejected doesn't mean it's a good book. <laughs> Certainly, <laughs> I mean, I think there are bad ideas that get rejected and. Uh, you know, there's there's also an argument to be made that perhaps for those publishers, this book was not a good fit. Maybe, maybe not. But uh, ultimately, for me, I, I think that the I, given my past experiences and professional experience, entrepreneurial experience before the nonfiction book selling process, and I think one thing that's important for people to understand if they're listening to this and don't have any background in publishing. <clears throat> Generally speaking, in nonfiction, you're almost you can almost treat it like raising money for a venture backed startup. You go out with this idea and a business plan, i.e., a book proposal. You sell it and then you write it. If you write a nonfiction book and try to go out and sell it, it is incredibly difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, it is more difficult in, in most respects than going out with a proposal first. Mm -hmm. uh, conversely, mm -hmm. in fiction, it's the other way around, right? If you're trying yeah. to sell an idea for a fiction book, especially if you're yeah. untested, it's not going to happen unless you have a completed manuscript. Uh, so so the, the sales process for me was easier than the writing process because I had more experience. Mm, with interesting. I had a lot of experience with long sales cycles mm -hmm. uh, because the job immediately, well, I should say prior to starting my company before that, in which case I was dealing with large retailers and so on, which had extended sales cycles. I had been selling massive or I should say mass data storage systems to organizations like FBI, American Airlines, and so on, which also meant multiple month sales cycles. So I was comfortable in the realm of working with a proposal to sell a publisher. I was less uh, 
familiar with the process of actually writing a book. <laughs> so mm. the, so yeah. the writing was the hardest uh, process for me. And I was also accustomed to rejection, which I think is not something many people have inoculated themselves against. Whereas if you mm. are in an external sales position, you're getting rejected all the time. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I didn't view that as a huge blow to my morale. It was just part of racking up enough no's that I would statistically get to a yes effectively. Um, but, but I'm curious to know for you after this first book, and we're not going to spend the whole time focusing on, on the book stuff, although I'm fascinated by it. How did you decide on your next book? How did you, because you, you, you mentioned, and I have this challenge as well. I mean, I do these deep dives on many different subjects. You could go a million different directions. How, mm. how did you narrow all the options down, or if, if that's even how it came about, to, mm-hmm. to your next book? How did, you, how did you end up deciding? Well, you know, in retrospect, I didn't realize this at the time. It took me a while. Like, I was several books in before I realized kind of my own theme. But my theme is human nature. That's every book that I've written, everything that I'm interested in, in some way is an examination of human nature through, from a different perspective. And so um, Power, Money, Fame, Sex, which was actually excellent background for writing about happiness because, you know, it's sort of the opposite um, of happiness. Um, and then so my next book was 40 Ways to Look at Winston Churchill. And I think I was I, I know that I was drawn to Winston Churchill because he's such a gigantic character. Everything in him is so huge. He's so studied. He was part of everything in the world for decades. I mean, he and he was, you know, whether or not you you agree with his policies or his statements, um, he was, you know, it played an extraordinarily important role. And then he was also a brilliant writer. He's an extraordinarily gifted writer. He painted. I mean, he was just sort of a million things. Um, and and so for me, I was very drawn to how do you tell the story in a like in a succinct, interesting, accessible way. Um, you know, people have written you know eight volumes of his life. Could I do it in you know 250 pages in a way that would be honest and be help be interesting to people? Um, and so you know, each of my book has sort of led to the next one. So I wrote 40 Ways to Look at Winston Churchill. Then I wrote 40 Ways to Look at JFK because I wanted to try this with another character. I wrote this really weird little book uh, called Profane Waste, um, which was uh, about like why owners des- um, destroy their own possessions, which is a subject again that had obsessed me since law school. Um, why did and then that? I got ob- into- why did that obsess you since law school? Well, you know. Um, it's hard to explain why it so obsesses me. But, you know, if you think about like the standard idea and certainly in law school, we, we talked a lot about this, about like the idea of what it means to possess. What makes sense is that people who possess things, try, owners try to try to preserve things or control things. Why would they why would someone um, want to burn their house to the ground? And is it legal to burn your own house to the ground? Or like there was a Japanese businessman um, like mogul who announced that he was going to bury his uh, impressionist masterpieces with him. And there was huge public outcry. Why do we think that it's worse for him to bury it with him in his grave than to like keep it in a basement in a bank? Um, why, you know, why do people, if you've seen the movie Harold and Maude, there's that move, m- moment when Maude throws the ring into the lake and says, now I know, now I'll never, I'll always know where it is. And to me, like this incredibly powerful and kind of taboo thing to do. So I was just trying to understand it. So again, it was just like some weird preoccupation that I had. Um, and, uh, it turns out this is like this whole rich crazy examples of people doing this and why they do it and how how you would explain it and then i got into the whole like happiness and habits and and sort of what i'm known for now um but it's all because it's all related to human nature um and so for me they feel very connected in one 
led very logically to the next. I think from the outside, it doesn't always look like that, but that's definitely how it feels to me. Like I'm always, I always am thinking about, um, I, I always have things that I'm, I'm dying to get to, um, as soon as I can. When, when you do a deep dive on something, whether it's for a book or otherwise, how do you take notes? What is your note taking system? Oh, I love taking notes. So it's and it's, 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 it's I'm so glad you asked about it because it's a huge part of what I do. Um, so I'll read books and I read like I always get my ideas. I do everything through reading. Like I'm a very unwell-rounded person and, and I, I don't really do interviews with people or anything like that. Like in terms of research, I do it all through reading. Um, and I read like the weirdest, craziest stuff. And um, so I will whenever I read a book, I will take extensive notes. So anything that strikes my fancy um, I'll, I will take a note of it. So I have a document that's just called Quotes 2006 Plus, and that's just anything that I think is particularly beautiful. Then I have subject um, notes that I take, like on habits or color or happiness, or you know, if I have big subjects, um, and then everything gets dumped into there. Are and, those separate Word documents, or what? What yes, are, what? Those are those are separate Word documents by topic? And then there's no internal structure in these notes. I own, I just will put like I would. I might tag something. So if let's say it was about let's say I was going to take a note about some habits research, I might tag it um, accountability, tracking, health. So that so then what happens? So I have these giant documents of notes, and then it's, and then it eventually turns into a book because at a certain point I have enough notes on a subject that I have started to form my own ideas and started to have my own viewpoint, my own you know um, my own ideas about who I agree with, who I think it's you know what what people are missing, what needs to be added or explained that isn't already added, isn't already you know kind of out there. And then I will start moving things from the notes into my own structure. And so I will use those tagging words to find things. Like if I'm writing a, a chapter about accountability, I would go through and pull, put everything. I would dump it into the accountability section. And from there, then I would begin to turn it into my own original writing. And the advantage of this is I never have a blank page because I'm always working from huge amounts of notes. But taking notes is a big part of my work day. Um, it's, it sounds like, oh, it's very perfunctory, but it actually – it's, it's – um, there's a lot of thinking that goes into it and then just like the, the sheer copying things out. Then that also helps me remember things because I, I need to remember a lot. And so I find that physically copying things helps me retain information. So I'll sometimes copy things just so that I, I can refer back to it easily, but then it also makes it easier for me to remember, um, you know, like what that, what did that study say or what was, what was the definition of ostensive anyway or whatever that helps me. And when you're copying things and pasting them, let's just say into your own format or, or, uh, structure, structure. Thank you. From a software perspective, are you still using word for that? And it's just a separate document or is there, is, is, are you using a different approach? Well, so with one of my books, I use Scrivener and I really, really like Scrivener, but I'm super untechy. And every once in a while, Scrivener would be like, now it's time to update. And that made me super scared because I felt <laughs> like my my document was sort of be, I couldn't get to it. Right. And it, it was so unnerving to me that I haven't used Scrivener since, even though I had a great experience with it, because I was just like, I really didn't like that. Because I think if I were very technically uh, savvy, then I would just do it and I wouldn't worry about it. But for me, it was always very anxiety producing. Like, am I going to do it right? Is something going to happen? What if this whole thing goes away and I have to do some week long customer service nightmare thing to, you know, because this document is, 
everything to me. You right. know, it's so precious. And so now I just keep it in word. I'm like, it's like, it was a little bit better, but you know, it's just not worth the, 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 um, the anxiety. And so now I do every, I just create a word document. Yeah. So I have more anxiety associated with word in and of itself. So I actually, mm. I I've actually used Scrivener for the last four books, uh, in Ew. terms of structuring. And I just automatically have developed a schedule and auto backups that then, drop a zip file for the entire Scrivener file into Dropbox so that I, I have multiple copies mm. uh, of the entire project backed up into zip files. But uh, I'm always curious about the software. Of course, that's a tool, and there are perhaps more higher-level conceptual frameworks that are more important. Uh, when you are reading these books, are you reading... Uh, hard copy or are you reading say Kindle and then exporting highlights uh, so that you can copy and paste things digitally? No, almost always I'm reading a hard copy. A lot of the things that I read are old and they don't exist in digital form because um, they're like old random books that nobody cares enough to digitize um, or to have you know available um, commercially. But um, but I also, I, again, I, I find, and this is what the research shows is true for many people, it's certainly true for me, that I retain things more when I read them in physical form. And then I also, I feel like if I could just cut and paste something, I would do, I would be tempted to do that. But I do think that the actual physical copying, even though I know people say handwriting is even better, but my handwriting so bad, I would never be able to read it again. <laughs> for me, typing does, again, it helps me, retain information because so much of what I do is like taking a giant subject and then trying to crunch it down mm -hmm. and so I have to have a lot in my mind at one time so for right. me just you know having a lot of uh, stuff in my working memory is very helpful I had asked you for Tribe of Mentors the book that you were kind enough to contribute to uh, about books that had had a significant impact on you or that it affected your thinking or been gifted by you often. And the book you brought up was a pattern language. Mm. Could you please explain, because you've read so many books, why a pattern language? Mm. So a pattern language is a book by Christopher Alexander, who's kind of this um, wacky architect uh, in California. And um, I love many books that he's written, but pattern language is interesting because it's it's nonlinear. So carrying on in our nonlinear theme, what he looks at is what what makes um, the part that's most interesting to me is like what makes spaces most interesting and comfortable for people. And he's not saying things like, oh, you know, your dining room chandelier should be 30 inches off your dining room table or, you know, uh, you should have a curved doorway, not a square doorway, things like that. It's much more poetic, and it's and what he does is he's he's looking, and he and his team looked all across cultures, all across the world in time, to see what were the patterns, what's the pattern language of what draws people into feeling good in a space. So, for example, it's things like um, uh, half wild garden, terrace overlooking life, uh, child cave secret place. Like he says, everybody's home should have a secret place that only the people who live there and the people they tell know about. And my, I'm like, when we moved, I'm like, we are definitely having a secret place in our apartment. And we do, we have, we have a couple <laughs> secret places. Um, or like sleeping to the East. It's like, people like to sleep to these, or like one thing is, um, here's one that really showed me why I like certain kind of like restaurants better. Ceilings at different heights. Look mm. around when you're in a place that feels comfortable, you'll notice the ceilings are at different heights. 
heights. And then if you're in a place where the ceiling is all at the same height, it doesn't feel as good. Or like cascade of roofs. If you look at roofs from Japanese temples to English manor houses, all across the you know, Norwegian farmhouses, they have a cascade of roofs and that's very pleasing. And so it's just this, I'm not very visual at all. I can only get, I can only see things through words. And so I felt like reading this book, all of a sudden I was able to key into my visual environment in a whole new way and understand like why certain spaces felt so inviting and comfortable. And then other spaces just turned me off. Mm. Um, like, Oh, like oh, light on two sides. If you're in a room that, that has only light on one side, it's not comfortable. You're far more comfortable in a room that has light on two sides. Pay attention. Well, you may living in New York. This is a huge thing. Where's your light coming from? How much light do you have? Huge difference between having light on one side and light on two sides. And, um, so anyway, so it's, and it's, it's a very, it's organized, it's nonlinear. It's just like organized in like bits and pieces. So you could just pick it up and flip through it. It has illustrations. And so you see the common, um, uh, patterns in, you know, in like a multitude of different architectures, architectural styles. And so it's just, it's very thought provoking. It makes you see the world in a whole new way, which is my favorite thing. Um, so that's why I love a pattern language. I have to pick it up. I thought I knew that book and I do not. I, I actually, uh-huh. I, I think that uh, I was confusing it with a book called The Loom of Language, which is f- completely different related to language acquisition and absurdly, uh-huh. absurdly dense. So uh-huh. I will <laughs> have to check it. a lot of pictures. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Now, given, given all of that, uh, I know, or at least based on my understanding, you do a lot of your work in a home office. What are the what are some of the key ingredients that make your home office your home office? Mm. Well, the one thing that's missing that I desperately want, but my office is too small, is a treadmill desk. I would love mm. a treadmill desk. I gave my sister a treadmill desk. Um, she has a treadmill desk, but my my office is too small. Um, one thing that I love that I have is three monitors, and I. I had for a long time thought, and I think a lot of people think, well, that's just going to be overwhelming. It's going to be too much information coming at me. It's going to be distracting. Like if I need to focus, I can't have three monitors. But then I read a study that said that knowledge workers, of which we are, like their productivity went up substantially when they went from one to two monitors. So I got a second monitor as an experiment. And like the next day I bought a third monitor. And I think I would have a fourth monitor if my desk were big enough, but my office is very small. But it just, it, you just can go so much faster. Like if I'm copying something from the internet into a document, it takes one second. I'm like looking up the definition of a word. I don't have to close out of my document. If, my e- if I need to look up something in an email, like, and, and like read an email and look up a map or something. It, you can just do it so seamlessly. So that's something I love. Um, I have a headset, love a headset. Um, do you have a particular headset or monitors that, uh, that you like? Um, my, I mean, my monitors are just like Dell basic. They're all different sizes too. Which, so it's not very, it's not very, uh, sleek looking <laughs> and it's a Plantronics, uh, headset, all very basic. um, uh, one thing I got that I didn't even know, I, 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 it was a pain point that I didn't even realize I experienced until there was a solution for it was I got a, um, you know, like right now I'm speaking to you on a headset that is plugged into my, uh, my hard drive. And for some reason, like the, the, the headset wire was just like always under my, my roll, the rolling wheels of my chair. And I couldn't figure out where to put my headset. So that it didn't get in my way. And then I found um, at the container store, it's like a hook that you just put on the side of a desk and then you hook your headset to it. I was like, 
this is exactly what I need. So I have that. It's a big, I have a book weight. Um, this is a very specific thing, but for people who do take a lot of notes, it's just a strip of leather that has weights on, on both ends. So that if you have a, like a book that's not staying open enough that you can read to copy it, you can put a book weight on it and it will hold it open. Huh. Um, I got that as a present and I was like, what am I going to do with this? And now I'm like, literally, I use it every single day. Um, it's so it's, so it's a flexible strip of leather with weight on either end. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so if you so if you need to trip yeah. a burglar getting away on horseback, you could probably do that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You can whap him on the head with that too. It's like, uh, don't break into my home office. Um, yeah, but I, you know, I don't, I don't have that much um, in terms of technology support. It's just like the basics and my laptop, of course, which is like my puppy practically i'm so you know emotionally attached to my laptop how do you know in a home office environment one of the benefits is that you can work when you want to work one of the potential downsides is that you can work at all times Uh, Mm -hmm. how what are the rules or systems or parameters policies whatever uh factors that you've set in place so that you are not in there at all hours or working during family time or fill in the blank. Like how do you, how do you contain that and structure your days uh, when you're, when you're, when you're doing well, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one thing I do is I will say to myself like, and it's a different time every day, but I will say like now is quitting time and I'll sort of in my mind think, okay, it's quitting time. And so like, sure, I might check my email or I might like read a book that is research, not for fun, but just like a research book um, after that time. But I'm basically not, I'm not working. Um, and then, and I also at that time will sort of clean up my office. And that also is kind of a signal like, okay, this is, I'm done for the day. I'm sort of setting up for tomorrow. And so this is kind of, it's coming to an end. You will clean, um, I, clean up your office. Yeah, like, you know, I'll carry my coffee mugs to the kitchen and I'll file anything that, you know, and throw away anything that needs to be thrown away. Or like if I got a book off the shelf, put the book back, put the caps on the pens, you know, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Um, Just to kind that makes it a lot nicer to come in in the next morning. And also it just it's kind of a visual signal. Like now I'm winding down for the day. Um, I'm kind of lucky because I live in an apartment, but my office used to be a water tower. Um, and the people before who lived in our apartment before us turned it into a storage room. Um, but a nice storage room with like windows and an air conditioner and heat. Um, and then when we moved, I was like, I could make that my office. So I'm sort of lucky because I have to go up a little flight of stairs oh, to nice. go to my office. And so it's not like I think if your office is like next to your kitchen, it's just right there all the time. Whereas for me, I like I, I actually have to like open up a door, go out into my service stairs and go upstairs. Um, and so I think that also makes it a little bit easier because it's just, you know, one of the things about whenever we're trying to get ourselves to not do something, making it inconvenient, the slightest bit of inconvenience makes it harder to get do something, which is, a you know, which we can use to try to make our habits better. So I think for me, that's that's a thing like once I'm down in my, once I'm like, okay, it's quitting time. I'm going down my little staircase. Um, that kind of creates a barrier, which is very helpful. So you mentioned, you mentioned habits and, uh, or it's come up a few times since that door is open. (laughs) Let's, (laughs) let's step into it. Uh, based on what I've read, uh, one of the reliable small changes that people can make or claim that they've made that makes them predictably happier is making their bed or making mm-hmm. their beds. 
Are there other small changes that you would also recommend for people who are hoping mm. to increase their self-reported well-being slash happiness? Mm. Well, one thing that seems to work for a lot of people is the one-minute rule. This is the rule that if there's anything you can do in less than a minute, you do it without delay. So if you can print out a document and delete the email do, and file it, do that. If you can scan a letter and throw it away, do that. If you can hang up your coat instead of dumping it on a chair – do that. Um, if you can put a book back on the shelf instead of just leaving it on the counter, do that. And what this does for a lot of people is just get rid of that kind of scum of stuff on the surface of life, you know, because sometimes it's not that there's any one thing that's so, you know, insurmountable to do, but you just feel like, oh my gosh, it just everywhere I look, I see everything's just kind of out of order and I have to sift through everything to find what I'm looking for. And so for a lot of people, they say just doing this um, just makes them feel like, well, I've got the little things out of the way. And so now I'm, I'm more ready to tackle the big things and getting enough sleep. Of course, get enough sleep. That is like a huge one. If you have the, ha and here's some, if you're having trouble getting enough sleep, mm -hmm. set an alarm. Most adults need seven hours of sleep. Most adults know what time they're going to get up in the morning. Do the math, give yourself an alarm, give yourself a bedtime. So it's not like, oh, I go to bed when I'm tired. It's like my bedtime is 1030. Um, and then and you might even need a snooze alarm, just like you have, if you have one in the morning, you might have one at night. And it's like, oh, my alarm went off. Now I have 15 minutes to get myself organized and get to bed. And then the alarm will go off again. And it's my bedtime. And another thing, another habit that can help with this is get ready before your bedtime. I realized that I was staying up late because I was too tired to get ready for bed. Like I was too tired to like wash my face and take off my contacts and change my clothes. <laughs> it's clearly very stupid approach. So now I get ready much earlier. And so once when I'm actually sleepy, it's easy to turn out the light because I'm already ready. Uh, so you do your, you do you, you, in other words, you do your pre-bed ritual well yes. before you need to go to bed. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm ready. I'm ready, but I'm a sleep zealot. I'm a sleep zealot. But if you're looking for like, what's a habit that will make you more energetic, uh, more immune to illness, higher focus and function, better temper, um, and just feel better, um, getting more sleep. If you don't get enough sleep, um, already is something that uh, will, will, will surely benefit you. And one of the funny, there's all this funny research that they've done because we really adjust to not getting enough sleep. And so people think that they're fine. They're like, oh, I've trained myself to get by on four hours of sleep. Like that's no problem for me. But when scientists study these people, they're quite impaired. Like we lose track of how good we feel when we have enough sleep. And so you might think that you're fine. Um, but Actually, if you had more sleep, you might feel a lot, lot better, have a lot more energy, have a lot more focus. Do you have any particular wind-down routines or rituals at night? Uh, or well, one thing – I have a – I have a, my daughter, um, before she goes to bed, often we will have like – we'll just sit together and just um, kind of uh, – like it's like time – it's meant to be time for her, but it's actually time for me too – to kind of unwind and um, because now she's old enough that we, we go to bed at more or less the same time because I am a sleep zealot. Um, and so that's one thing. Um, but what, what do you uh, guys, what do you guys do when you sit down? She just pretty much talks to me about her day, you know, mm -hmm. or like we'll talk about um, she's actually very interested in being a writer too. And so sometimes we'll talk about writerly things. I mean, it's funny. She was reading this book and we had this long discussion about pacing in a novel. Like this book was very like, you know, the pace of it was like, 
very fast. Did we like that? Like a book that covered 10 years versus a book that covers a summer. And so we'll talk about stuff like that. Um, which of course for, and for me is tremendously fun, but mostly she just tells me about like what happened in her day. And, um, you know, she's in seventh grade, so there's a lot of drama to catch me up on. Um, but it's just a really nice way to sit down and really connect at the end of the day. Um, and it's very, it's very relaxing, you know, it's very, very peaceful. Um, but I, maybe because I am such a sleep zealot and really do guard it. I don't, I, 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 I feel like I wind down pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the morning, do you have any, like, if you look at the first, say 60 to 90 minutes of your day, what, what does that look like? Is it, is it fairly standard from day to day? The first hour is because I get up at 6 a.m. every day. I walk my dog. I get coffee. And then I sit down and do what all the experts tell you not to do, which is I spend the first hour of my day checking my email and social media, which everybody says, if you're a morning person, you should do your most intense intellectual work then because that's when you're at your best. I definitely am a morning person. But I realize like, I can't focus on anything until I check my inbox and see what's going on, check social media, see what's going on there. I just can't, I'm just too distracted by that until I get it done. So I do that. And then it's time for my daughter to go to school. So often I'll walk her to school. She doesn't need me to walk her to school, but I do it just because it's fun. It's like a nice way to get out. And then I'll usually, I'll often exercise. So I will either go for a walk in Central Park or I'll go to the gym or I do high intensity strength training or I have a yoga class. Um, And then, and then, so then that's kind of the beginning of my day. And then I go into whatever am I preparing for a podcast? Am I working on a book? Am I talking to a reporter? Am I writing an email? Am I planning? You know, then, then the rest of the day is, is much more, um, unpredictable or it changes day to day. Um, unfortunately I wish I had the life of a Benedictine monk because I would love to have every day be exactly the same. Um, but it's not. Well, you could, right? I mean, you you ostensibly no, I really couldn't. no, I really couldn't. No, because it's like journalists. You know, they're like, well, I'm in I'm in the UK, so I can't talk to you at five because for me that's the middle of the night, or I have to record a podcast, so yeah. that has to happen at a certain time. You know, and so um, I mean, I would have to work so hard uh, to have that kind of. Um, it's, I just don't think it's worth it. I mean, I might kind of enjoy it, but I, I, it's not worth fighting for. I, in my mind, for other people, it might, they, might, they might want to do, really uh, make that a priority. Well, I guess I've, I've just realized for myself that there are certain categories of activities, media certainly being one, that make my schedule or make me create a schedule that is more reactive than it could be otherwise. So at least one of my fantasies, we're, we're talking now for people who might be listening to this later, we're talking in December, 2017. And one of the recurring thoughts that I've had is a three to six month sabbatical from both media and social media. So media Mm -hmm. meaning interviews and social media, just to see what happens when I remove those two categories of inputs that tend to jostle and move things around. Mm. as much as they do. I don't know what the outcome would be. I don't know if it will happen, uh, although I, I would certainly planning on seeing Star Wars uh, tonight or tomorrow. So if, if we're channeling inner Yoda, uh, I, I should <laughs> certainly commit or not commit. But for your for yourself, I mean, you've written so much about happiness. If you, if you were to look back over the last, could be five years, it doesn't have to be. I'm just arbitrarily pulling a number out. What are What are some of the changes that you've made that have had the greatest impact on your uh, either levels of happiness or 
uh, and these may be the same thing, uh, increased happiness or decreased anxiety and other negative emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, well, one thing that I did was uh, like four years ago is like I gave up sugar, quit sugar and, and basically carbs. So I don't eat sugar, uh, pasta, flour, starchy vegetables. I don't really eat much. I, I eat almost no fruit. Um, so like the most carby things I eat are green vegetables and, uh, nuts. So I do eat a lot of nuts and which help like a fair amount of carbs. So, and this for me was the greatest thing. I had always had a, a really terrible sweet tooth and, um, and I hated the feeling of like, can I have this or it's just a bite or it's for free or it's my birthday or, you know, that whole thing. And I just like, I just, and I write about this in better than before that I realized I'm an abstainer. It's easier for me to have none than to have a little bit. And I just gave it up. I read this book, um, why we get fat by Gary Tobbs. And I'm like, overnight, I'm like, I'm completely convinced I'm changing everything about the way that I eat. And for me, it was just the most, freeing, energizing, positive change. Um, and I also used to get super hungry, like shaking, sweating, hungry, because I was eating like a very low fat um, diet and you know, it was not that, even that much protein. And um, and so, um, and now I don't have that. It was super inconvenient. Um, so for me, that was a huge thing. I'm not saying that would work for everybody, but that was for me. And, and it was a very dramatic change. Um, my husband actually gave me a Christmas ornament in the shape of a strip of bacon to like, <laughs> like, memorialize this was the year of the beginning of bacon because boy we eat a lot of bacon um and um so that was a big thing for me um and um uh, in the last five years it, it could uh, it could be longer if, it if could that's be longer. helpful well one thing that i did that added tremendously to my happiness um so i am a, like this crazy raving fan of children's literature and young adult literature so i read it as a child and i read it now as an adult and um, and I realized when I was writing The Happiness Project that this was something that I loved, but I didn't really make much time for it in my life. I, it kind of didn't fit with my idea of myself, that I was very sophisticated. I was a very kind of advanced reader who read very, you know, kind of like very adult things. And um, But I realized, you know, I don't really have that many true like passions and interests. And so I don't, I don't have enough that I can just ignore one of the big ones. And I started a group um, for adults who read and love children's literature and young adult literature. And when I started it, I truly believe that there were no other adults in New York city who would want to join this group. (laughs) And, um, and now there are three of these groups. Um, I just actually had my annual Christmas party when I get all three groups together one, one day a year, they all three meet and I'm a member of all three, but there were so many that there had to be three separate groups. And it's been amazing because I've met all, I've met a bunch of like bookish people who I love. So I have more relationships. I have, um, and these are people who share something that I love. I have a way to talk about and learn about something that I truly love. And the fact is it's, it's like some people like mysteries, some people like sci-fi. It's like some people like children's literature and young adult literature. It's just a different taste that some people have and some people don't. As adults, we have, there's nothing to do with children in these groups. Um, and, but that was something where I'm like, wow, when I look back on changes that I made that gave me like huge spike in happiness, both kind of intellectually and also through relationships, because relationships are probably the key to happiness. Um, that was a big one. That was a big one, kind of acknowledging that and then like really bringing it into my, like really shining a light on it in my life, letting it really kind of take its place as a major um, occupation in my life. What is the rhythm of the group's 
look like in terms of meetings and so on? And do you, do you communicate via Facebook groups, email? Could you just paint a, a picture yeah. of, of logistically how it actually works? Um, they all, we all uh, communicate through email. Um, so one of the groups, they're all a little bit different. One of the groups, uh, well, they all meet every six weeks and they all take, we all take turns meeting at certain people's apartments. Like people will take turns. Some people have apartments that are too small or too far away. And so it's not convenient. So those people just don't enter the rotation, um, which is fine. That's just like whatever. Some people host, some people don't. Um, one person never hosts. So she always brings dessert. That's like her contribution. She brings dessert every time. So fine. Um, one of the groups we rotate among um, classic, modern, and contemporary. So we might read Peter Pan and then Harriet the Spy and then The Hate You Give. You know, we would do that. The other ones just pick books. We just pick whatever we feel like reading. So like right now, reading Book of Dust by Philip Pullman, which is like the, you know. <sighs> yeah. I was going to ask you about Philip Pullman. Well, we're we're going to come back to this. So please okay. continue. Well, like, oh, let's get going on Philip Pullman. So, um, and so, and then one of the groups had a tradition, but we've sort of fallen out of it, is that you would serve something related to the books, which was funny. Like we read Holes by Louis Sekar and the person served donut holes or like one time <laughs> um, we read Little House in the Big Woods and it was like, um, you know, cornbread and apple pie and, you know, red gingham tablecloth. So that's just sort of like a little fun thing you could do if you felt like it. Um, who, and decides, so, who decides on the books to read? We all work it out. Like every book groups, uh, all book groups have different ways and we just sort of talk about it and, and everybody sort of says like, yeah, that one sounds good. Um, so we don't really have a, we don't really have a particular uh, methodology for picking. And sometimes, and you, usually though now we're trying to pick a book that at least everyone is talking about it. So it's like a book that's important to read even if we don't like it or it's a book that somebody has read and loves. And so they're like willing to say like, I really love this book because we don't want to read something that is like no one's going to like. Um, but sometimes it's worth reading a book just because it is, it's sort of of the moment. And so you want to know what is working right now or what's, what are people responding to right now? That's always kind of interesting. Um, and when, and you, when you meet up, what does the meetup look like? Is it, is there like for 10 minutes, we're going to do this for a half hour. We're going to do this. And... Very loose. The motto of the kidlet groups is no guilt. So you are <laughs> completely encouraged to come, even if you haven't read the book. Um, if you haven't been able to come for a year because you've been too busy and then you want to start coming again, we welcome you back at any time. No explanations necessary. We talk about the book as much or as little as we want. Sometimes we talk about the book a lot because there's a lot to say. Sometimes it's like, oh, this, you know, um, you know, it's not that much. And we talk about other things that we're more interested in. Um, so it's very loose. It's not, it's not a highly, it's not a highly structured experience. I hear about some book groups and I'm like, oh my gosh, it sounds like a seminar, you know, like you have to prepare and like, you have to give a, <laughs> like a statement and they have like an expert come talk. I'm like, no, this is just a bunch of people. We just love it. So it's like everybody sitting around being like, um, you know, uh, what did you think, you know, right. and, uh, people who really know the books. So, um, so, you know, it's like, if you want to talk about, you know, deep into the Louis, uh, Louisa May Alcott canon or, um, you know, the great schism in the books is twilight in the groups is twilight. Um, <laughs> some people like those books, some people don't like those books. And so that's like, you know, if I'm ever talking to somebody who's thinking, you know, about the group, I'm always like, well, how do you feel about it? Because you have to have an opinion. You don't have I to agree it. with my opinion. Right. 
but it's like anybody who's in this area like has a viewpoint it's like that, <laughs> on, you know, on the twilight series <laughs> you can't you can't be like what's that i've never heard of that or oh i thought those were just movies it's like no you've got to you got to have a view that's how we know <laughs> you're one of us you know you don't have to like it but you have to think have a thought so i'd love for you to clarify something for me because this is this is something that surprised me greatly and it may be a misconception but i remember picking up uh, the Golden Compass, and uh, well, I actually bought all of uh, what is it? His Dark Materials. Am I getting that right? The Philip Pullman yep. uh, series, <clears throat> and I bought it. I remember I, I bought a paperback initially, and it was in the young adult section. Mm-hmm. And in my yep. mind, that meant easier reading for younger readers. And then I got into this book, and I was, and I, I, I had to constantly look up nautical terms and vocabulary. Mm-hmm. It was a very, very uh, dense isn't the right word, but intellectually demanding book. And mm-hmm. I thought to myself, how in the hell could say an eleven year old read this without a good amount of assistance or a dictionary? And then a bookseller said to me, well, it's young adult because the protagonist is a young adult, not because the book is for young adults. And I, I was like, really? I wasn't sure about that. So could you explain maybe your position on that? Like what, what, mm. what qualifies something to be in the young adult genre? Because I, I loved the Philip Pullman books, but they are certainly yes. more demanding intellectually than many of the so-called yep. adult books that I've read. Yeah. No, and you raise a very interesting question and one that we talk about a lot and that nobody has a good answer to, which is what makes something YA? And sometimes it's just a feel. And 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 a lot of times books are put in YA because the protagonists are young adult. Like Jane Eyre has started drifting into YA. I will often see it in YA. Or like Catcher in the Rye. Catcher in the Rye was not written for to be a young adult book. It's an adult book. Um, but it sort of drifted there because the protagonist is a teenager. Um, and I think you're right. Sometimes it doesn't. But like then there's this, uh, I don't know if you've read Black Swan Green by David Mitchell. Like that is clearly an adult book, but the protagonist is a teenager. I'm like, is someday somebody going to decide that's a YA book? So I think you're right. I think what what makes something YA or not is very much in the eye of the beholder. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it's not sophisticated or demanding. And there's a lot of books, you know, now there's a lot of talk of crossover. Like, are there books that adults would read? And I, I kind of wish, as much as I love children's literature and young adult, I kind of wish that that people didn't see this this split because I think a lot of times adults don't read things that they might re- very much enjoy because they think, well, it's YA, so it's it's not for me. And it's like these are these are really you know these are really really great books um, on their own terms. So I'm with you. I don't I don't think that that's I don't think that it that's what makes a YA book because um, uh, because there's many books that are, that have, um, you know, teenage protagonists that, you know, um, I'm just thinking of like, uh, tale for the time being by Ruth Ozeki. Well, half of the, like one of the narrator, there's two narrators. One of them is like a 15 year old girl or something like that. That is not a YA book. Right. Um, yeah. So I, I, it's very, it's very, it's hard to define what that is. Yeah. All it's right. so good, right? Aren't you glad you read it? So good. Oh, it's incredible. Yeah, for people, yeah. I was so outraged when that movie came out, and it's just terrible, terrible, terrible. Yeah, absolutely horrible. So for, for yeah, swing yeah. again, guys. That's yeah. it's such a good story. Yeah, uh, especially the first book is so so good. Well, uh, for my my Kidlip group as a thank you present, somebody brought me a um a uh, a Christmas ornament of a polar bear wearing like a a banner a royal 
Royal Banner. And I'm like, I know I'm in the right group because everybody, I showed it to everybody. And they're like, look, it's Jornik Bjornesson. And I'm like, of course it is. This is not just some random polar bear. This is like, you know, from the Golden Compass. Yeah. Uh, such a good, yeah, such a great so book. So, so I'm going to switch gears uh, yet again. And I want to ask you about accountability. You were interviewed by a friend of mine, Chase Jarvis. And mm-hmm. I believe I'm getting this right. You can certainly fact check me, but I believe you said a lot of people who are frustrated with themselves just need accountability. And I was mm-hmm. hoping you could expand on that and maybe give us some examples of how you or mm-hmm. other people have used accountability. Mm-hmm. Well, that's going to require me to go into my four tendencies framework. So can Let's I bring this on you at this yes. point? Okay. Oh, yeah. Totally. So for, the four tendencies is this personality framework that I stumbled on basically when I was writing better than before, which is my book about habit change, because I kept noticing patterns in how people could and couldn't form habits that didn't really wasn't really explained by everything else that I was reading. I, I was like, I don't get like what's going on here. It seemed like there was some pattern there that had that was hadn't been identified. And it almost melted my brain. Like figuring this out was definitely the most intellectually challenging thing um, that I've ever done. It was it, the it, the catalyst for it was a very ordinary conversation where a friend of mine said, um, "The weird thing about me is I know I would be happier if I exercised. And when I was in high school, I was on the track team, and I never missed track practice. So why can't I go running now?" And I had heard many people say similar things like that throughout my life, but for some reason, when she said that, I was just electrified. I was like, "I must." understand what is going on. What's different? Because it's the same person. It's the same behavior. At one time, it was effortless for her. Now she can't do it. How do you explain that? And that's what led me to the four tendencies. So and accountability is a huge is we will get to that. So the four tendencies has it divides people into upholders, questioners, obligers and rebels, depending on how you respond to expectations. I know this sounds super boring, but it gets really juicy. So um, (laughs) So um, it has to do with how you deal with outer expectations, which are things like a work deadline or request from a friend, and then also inner expectations, which is like your own desire to keep a New Year's resolution, your own desire to write a novel in your free time. So they're upholders, questioners, obligers, rebels. Upholders readily meet outer and inner expectations. So they meet the work deadline without much fuss. They keep the New Year's resolution without much fuss. They want to know what other people expect from them, but their expectations for themselves are just as important. Then there are questioners. Questioners question all expectations. They'll do it if they think it makes sense. So they're turning everything into an inner expectation. If it meets their standard, they'll do it, no problem. If it fails their standard, they will resist. And they typically argue against anything arbitrary, inefficient, irrational. Then there are obligers, and that's my friend on the track team. Obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. So they will meet the work deadline, but they're going to have a lot of trouble with the New Year's resolution. And then there are rebels. Rebels resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. They want to do what they want to do in their own way, in their own time. Um, They can do anything they want to do. They can do anything they choose to do. But if you ask or tell them to do something, they're very likely to resist. Um, And there's there's a quiz um, on my site, uh, GretchenRubin.com, a free quiz. And more than a million people now have taken that quiz. But most people don't even need to take the quiz. They just hear that like little introduction and they know what they are. And, uh, and this ends up making a huge difference in how you uh, most successfully go through life and deal with other people. Which are you? I'm an upholder, which means that I readily meet outer and inner expectations. Now, and now, from um, the from from the not, not to interrupt, but I will. Yep. It, it seems like from the description you just gave that it is by far 
best to be an upholder? Are mm. there are there downsides to being an upholder? Because it sounds there's... great if you're able to oh. both follow your inner and in, intrinsic motivators and extrinsic motivators. Well, there there's a lot of there's a lot of great things about being an upholder. Certainly, um, it's a small tendency. Rubble is the smallest tendency, and upholder is only slightly larger. Um, one of the things, the, the, but all of the tendencies have strengths and weaknesses. Usually, the strengths and the weaknesses, it's like two sides of the same coin. Um, and when you look at who's the happiest, the healthiest, the most productive, most creative, it's the people who have figured out how to harness the strengths of their tendency and offset the weaknesses and limitations of their tendency. And some of the weaknesses and limitations of upholders, one upholders can, um, they can be rigid. Like they will lock into like a schedule or a priority list. And then it's like, they're like, what do you mean uh, we have to do something different? Like they tend not to do well where there's a lot of emphasis on being flexible or where it's not clear what expectations are or where it's ambiguous what's expected of them um, or when things change rapidly. They can be they can have tightening, which is when the rules get tighter, which is like um, a friend of mine who had a Fitbit, you know, and was trying to do 10,000 steps a day. He's like, my wife was asleep in bed. I was locked myself in the bathroom and I'm jogging away next to the toilet at 1 a.m. because <laughs> I'm going to get to my, ten, you know, by mid midnight because I'm going to get to my 10,000 steps. That's tightening. Like it could be good, but sometimes you can become kind of like the, uh, you know, the mindless bureaucrat of your own paperwork as a, a <laughs> something that folders really have to be watch out for. Um, or like I was doing physical therapy and my physical therapist told me to do it twice a day. And then all of a sudden I found I was doing it four times a day. I'm like, maybe that's good, but maybe that's not good. Um, and then they can also seem very cold. It's funny. I, the other night I gave a talk and an upholder, somebody was like, Oh, I, she's an upholder like you. And I think it's so great to be an upholder. What's the downside? And I was like, cause they can seem cold. And this woman leans into me and she goes, Oh my gosh, I am so cold. Um, because upholders are like, you know, I know that we've got guests coming to stay with us at home this weekend, but I got to go on a 15 mile run because I'm training for the marathon. So you're going to be on your own because I got to go for my run or like, you know, oh, you're my colleague and our reports are due tomorrow. And you've asked me if I can proofread your report, but I don't have time for that because I got to finish my report. My report's due tomorrow, too. To an upholder, that seems appropriate. I need to meet my inner expectations as well as, you know, my outer expectation of handing this in tomorrow. But to other people, that can seem cold because they're like, well, can't you can't you give a little in order um, to meet other expectations? So those are some of the downsides. Yeah. So for your friend who was able to run when she was part of a track team, but now as I guess an obliger, yes. doesn't have that external force. Yes. What type of action or structure? What type of action could she take or structure could she create, given that insight? Well, this goes back to your original question, which is about accountability. That is the answer for obligers. And I would say of everything related to the four tendencies, this is the most important idea that's helped the most people figure out kind of the hidden patterns of their nature, which is that if you're an obliger, um, by definition, you can meet, you can easily meet, you're meeting outer expectations, but struggling to meet inner expectations. The solution, the way to fix this, the very concrete and straightforward solution is outer accountability. Outer accountability can work for other tendencies. It is essential for obligers. If you want to read more, join a book group. If you want to exercise more, join a class where they take attendance, work out with a trainer, work out with a friend who's going to be annoyed if you don't show up, take your dog for a run every morning, and he's going to be so disappointed if he doesn't go for a run, plus he's going to tear up the living room. Some obligers can use things like their future self, like, well, now Gretchen doesn't want to go for a run, but future Gretchen's going to be so disappointed if I break the chain. I've been going so, I've been doing so well. I, I need to do it because for future Gretchen. 
obliges vary dramatically in what kind of accountability structures work for them. Because like some for some obligers, paying for something makes them very likely to feel accountable. For other obligers, it's almost like it makes them feel like they're off the hook. Like, oh, I paid for it. So that's like the same as doing it. And you're like, no, it's really not. Um, <laughs> but so but that is the thing. When you're an obliger, you want to feel like, figure out, well, how can I create a structure of outer accountability around inner expectations? This is true even for self-care. This is a word that's huge tip off. If somebody starts talking about self-care, I'm like, bing, 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 you're an obliger. Or if you're somebody who's like, well, you know, I – I don't have time to exercise because I give 110% to my clients. Like you're an obliger because you're saying I can't meet an inner expectation because I'm always meeting outer expectations. Now you might pride yourself on that and think, oh, I'm such a badass. Of course, I, I'm always seeing patients. I'm always at the hospital. I never have time to like cook. You know, I never have time to have a healthy meal because I'm always eating out of the vending machines because I'm, I work so hard at the hospital. I do everything for my patients. It's like, okay, well, you're an obliger. So Given that, if you do decide that you want to exercise or eat healthfully or write a novel or practice meditation or whatever, how could you imagine systems of outer accountability that would permit you to follow through with that, that inner aim that you have for yourself? And so, sometimes obligers don't like the fact that they're reliant on outer accountability. They feel like somehow it's weak. Like, who cares? It's, it's the biggest tendency. It's the one that most, the most people belong to for both men and women. A lot of people are in the same boat. Who cares how it, what you have to do to get there? Just figure out what works for you, you know, outer accountability works, use it. Yeah, totally. It's, uh, it doesn't have to be depressing. It can just be useful. I mean, if you, if you look at the psychology and the incentives involved, uh, I mean, I've, I've, for instance, I mean, I've seen people who've used, uh, to great effect services or sites like dietbet.com where you're putting money into a betting pool or stick S T I C K -K K.com or others where you're provided with a framework for, holding yourself accountable, whether that results in financial loss, if you don't hit the goals, or if you have people who uh, are effectively referees who hold you accountable. Uh, Like you mentioned, do you, you mentioned New Year's resolution a few minutes ago. Do you set New Year's resolutions for yourself? Is that a practice that you have? Uh, You know, kind of my job is to have resolutions. I feel like I'm like resolving constantly. Um, so I don't really make new year's resolutions in the same way on, on the half year podcast, Elizabeth and I did this thing called 18 for 2018. And that wasn't really like resolutions. It was more like 18 things you want to get done in 2018. So that was like a different, you know, there's all, and then there's like the way I, one, one thing I do, I've done many times is pick a one word theme for the year, which is, is, is again, a different take at the new year's resolution, hmm. um, where you're like my, like my, this year, my, my word is delegation. And I've had it, in other words, be like, um, you know, uh, like there's, uh, you know, um, repurposing, you know, where I'm it's setting a theme for the year. My sister's one year was Hot Wheels because she wanted to get a new car. Um, <laughs> but um, but I don't really make traditional New Year's resolutions anymore, partly because I do make so many resolutions sort of as part of my ongoing experiment in happiness and right. good habits. Um, if something occurs to me, I usually like try it right away because, um, uh, just, you know, for the fun of it. Yeah. So delegation is your, th- I like this idea of a one word theme for the year. So it, delegation yeah, is your theme for 2018. Yeah. Because, so, um, yeah, I realized I need to delegate more. So I was going to ask how, how does that then get translated into sort of actions, things with deadlines, next steps, and so on. What What is your process from from 
the point of identifying that and naming it to starting to implement it and make sure that it's translated into real life? What does that look like? Well, for me, it's it's asking myself the question, what is it that I do that someone else can do? There are, th- there are many things that I do that no one else could do, but there's some things that I do that other people could do. And I need to be more disciplined in identifying that and, and delegating it. Partly it's just like at any one moment, it's easier to just do it myself. It's like faster to just do it myself than to like sit down and figure out, well, who could do it instead and how could I delegate it? Or maybe I shouldn't do it at all. Or, you know, it's just easy. And that's part of being an upholder. It's easier for me to just execute than to step back and be like, well, why should I do this? And is there a better way? That's what questioners are good at. Um, and, um, so I want to do that. And then like last year, my, my theme was repurposing, but I realized, and I did a very bad job living up to that theme. And I'm like, that's because I need to delegate repurposing, which is I need to find like someone who I can ask, like to go through, you know, I have a tremendous archive of stuff, but I always want to just be creating a new thing, but I have all this stuff that I could make something cool out of and say, like, say to somebody, go through, look at all my stuff and pull out everything related to self-knowledge and put it in some kind of form. And then I'll go through it and, and polish it and tinker with it and, and, and make it into something really cool. But if you would just go through and do that, then my, my work would take a fraction of the time. It would just be the fun part that only I can do. Cause I, you know, instead of me thinking, keep thinking, Oh, I should go through and like cut and paste. And that would sort of be fun, but somebody else can do that. Um, so I need, so I'm trying to figure that out. Um, how, how exactly that's gonna, um, what form that will take. Um, it doesn't come naturally to me, so it's going to be, it's going to be a struggle. Are there any, any particular low hanging fruit or first candidates that you're, that you're thinking of, uh, experimenting with delegating? Um, well, I, that's, see, that's a very good question because I feel like I could do all these sort of little books and I need to sit down and decide, well, which one would be the most fun for me and for other and for readers. Like I have all these like w- one sentence uh, aphorisms, which I love one sentence aphorisms and they're sort of sprinkled and like secrets of adulthood and they're sprinkled all over the place. But I have to sit down and think like, is this something that would be a good book? Is this a book? Is this not a book? Is there something else it should be? You know, that's like, that's the work that only I can do. But then once I decide like, well, what's that priority? Um, then I can start thinking about it. Yeah. So it's a whole, it's, it's a big thing. It's not, it's not like something, it's not like, um, you know, pick up my clothes every night before I go to bed instead of leaving them in a giant pile on the end of the uh, you know, at the chair at the end of the bed, which is another one of my resolutions, but that that's like easy to, execute right this one there's like lots of moving pieces that are very uncomfortable for me to ponder yeah huh well how how will you go how will you go about making that process process easier for yourself or uh i mean i think that a lot of people listening certainly will feel a similar pain in terms of their historic lack of delegation uh Mm -hmm. are there any people or systems that you're going to rely on to help you with the getting better at delegation? Well, I think it's, I think I have to, I think it has to come from my own mind. So I think it's about examining my work process and thinking, well, what is it that I can do? What is it that I should do that no one else can do? I'm thinking about, um, that, that's what I need to sit down and think Mm -hmm. about. Yeah. 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 Everything from handling email to, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I know we, we don't have uh, you know, too, too much time left, but I'd love to ask you some of my 
I suppose usual kind of rapid fire questions. Cause I'm really oh, curious yeah. how, how you'd answer some of them. And one is, one is related to failure. So do, is there any particular failure of yours that you can think of that set the stage for a later success or a favorite mm. or favorite failure of yours, so to speak, mm-hmm. that, you, mm-hmm. that, that you learned mm-hmm. a lot from or steered you mm-hmm. in, in a different direction? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I wrote a book, which I love. I love all my books called 40 Ways to Look at JFK. And as they say in the industry, it did not find its audience. <laughs> you in a book bomb. So nobody bought this book. Nobody was interested in this book. And um, but what it taught me that was so, so it was a very it was a failure. Um, it didn't they didn't even make it into a paperback. So that was a that was my only book that's only exists in hardback form. Um, and uh, but what I learned was I had this incredible feeling of helplessness. Um, that here I was, I had poured my heart into a book. I really thought it was good. And I was totally dependent on others to shine a spotlight on it. Like there was nothing I could do, um, to try to let people know that the book was there. Now, maybe they weren't interested, but I couldn't even try to interest them in it. I had no tools. And it was just at this time that everything was become all the tools that now exist online were just becoming accessible enough to people who are very untechnical like me things like having a blog and um and i had already started working on the happiness project and one of the kind of and the idea of the happiness project is i was test driving all these things that people tell you about how you can be happier and one of the things that the research keeps showing is that novelty and challenge make people happier and i thought well, that's not true for me. I like mastery and familiarity, but I have to do something because the whole point of the book is that I'm going to do this experiment. So I'm like, well, I'll do something novel and challenging. I'll start a blog. Well, I quickly realized that the blog, which I started thinking that it would be like my gratitude journal and I would quickly abandon it because it wouldn't work, which I did with my gratitude journal. But um, <laughs> the um, but I but I really enjoyed the blog. It did well. Um, and I realized that it was solving this problem that I had felt before, which was I have no way to c- connect directly to readers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel like if that if I hadn't had if I hadn't had that failure, I wouldn't have I don't think I would have had as much excitement and interest in the blog because I wouldn't have understood how valuable it is to connect with readers. It's one of the reasons I love having a podcast. It's one of the reasons that I like I love using social media like I love connecting with listeners and viewers and readers about the subjects that I'm interested in. I get immense value from it because I get all kinds of examples and questions and illustrations and people are like my research assistants. They'll send me links to research and you know anything they think you know connects to the things that I'm obsessed with. Um, so it's enormously valuable to me. But I don't know if that book had done fine. I don't know that I would have realized the value of it because I would have been like, Oh, I'll just write a good book and people will just naturally know about it. And it's like, but now with like shrinking, you know, coverage in traditional media, you know, there's fewer now looks like indie bookstores are kind of coming back. But for a while it was was really scary for indie bookstores. Like, um, I was, I thought I really do want to be able to connect with people, um, myself, just like with my own steam, um, rather than depending on gatekeepers, Oh, like, for sure. If I don't get a book review, then this book essentially doesn't exist in the public mind. Or, you know, once it's not in the front table, then no one will ever see it again or it will never be heard from again. Um, so that was a failure that had enormous consequences for me. It did not feel it did not feel like a, a like a like a, a helpful failure at the time. But looking back, um, it was a lucky failure for sure. What's uh, what software or platform do you use for your blog? Uh, WordPress. 
Yeah. Yeah. WordPress is interesting. I mean, for a host of reasons, right? Both email podcasting and platforms like WordPress are really, I'm also on WordPress uh, and have been since day one, even before I became involved with uh, automatic later, the company that handles wordpress.com. But the, the benefit in say an open source platform or something that can be ported from one place in the case of email from one say email service provider to another is that your audience travels with you, right? And this makes me think of a conversation that I had long ago with someone who had a multi-million dollar business based on Facebook. And I think Facebook is incredibly valuable for a lot of things. However, when your access and reach to your audience is dependent on an algorithm that is 100% outside of your control, I asked him what it was like to have a business based on Facebook. And he said, it's like owning the most profitable mcdonald's in the world on top of an active volcano (laughs) oh yeah wow and uh this this is something certainly with books i mean the vast majority this is changing but many authors and certainly most publishers have no means of communication with their readers whatsoever Uh, it's a really really important so this this then is a follow-up question and you might have to pick something else because i think this what you just said could be an answer but what is one of the best or most worthwhile investments you've ever made could be money time energy anything Mm. at all Mm. i mean like uh well i mean i just keep thinking laptop but that's so basic and so long ago it doesn't even really count what about Uh, about skill development is there any particular uh learning how like podcasts i mean mm -hmm. that's a whole separate skill yeah that was huge. Like entering into that world was a huge, huge thing. Yeah. How did you, how did you learn? I mean, what, what, uh, because you have a, you have a popular podcast mm-hmm. and certainly you were coming in with an advantage as I did with an audience for your books, but mm-hmm. how did you think about learning to podcast? Well, I did something which is like one of my favorite things to do, which is I was like, I'm going to have a manifesto. Like I'm really into sort of like taking ideas and trying to distill them. So I went around and talked to as many people I could find who either created podcasts or worked in podcasting or just loved podcasts. And I asked them like, what, like, how do you even think about it? And um, would hear what they talk. And then whenever they would say something that I was like, okay, it makes the manifesto, you know? And so like one of the, like one thing that made the manifesto, which I think about all the time is to be consistent and also surprise. And I think about that all the time. Like there has to be consistency, but then you also have to break it up, you know, instead of you were, or like, and like le- let the outside world into your podcast. You know, you don't want it to become too insular. Um, you have new people on your podcast all the time, but for us, it's mostly me and my sister. So it's like, you don't want it to start feeling claustrophobic. So how do you right. get the outside world in? Um, how, just as a, uh, just to hit pause for a second, how do you do that? Because it, like it, it, thing- it could quickly become just all inside baseball, right? For long-term right, right. listeners. Well, one thing is we have interviews, but very sporadically. So not nearly, you know, it's like every maybe fifth episode, if even that often. So that's one way to get in. Sometimes our producer will come in and like, like, just like make a comment. So you're like, oh yeah, they're in a, they're in a, you know, there is like other people around. Um, Often we try to have clips from like televisions or movies if those are, uh, if those are relevant or, you know, music. Um, if there's something like that or, um, you know, even sound effects or, um, just something so like, so that the sound is, is changing. Um, so that's one thing. Um, 
Uh, and so for me, that was, that's very helpful. It's sort of like, okay, I'm, I'm not just like having coffee with somebody and having them tell me about their podcast. I'm like, I'm looking for those gems that are like the takeaways or like one thing is, um, fans are great, but a community is, is, is better. Hmm. Um, so how do you change, how do you change fans into a community? Like, that's a question that we still are thinking about all the time. This is an aspirational manifesto. It's not what we do. It's what we try to do. Um, how have you thought about turning your listeners into a community? Well, one thing that we do a lot of is we have tons of listener content. So like, um, uh, like for the holidays, for instance, we, we were like, okay, send us your best holiday hack. Mm -hmm. Um, so like some quick, easy thing to make the holidays easier, whether that's about entertaining or your Christmas card list or, you know, buying gifts or dealing with your difficult relatives or like traveling, whatever it is. And then we would go through and have like, oh, here are all these things from our community. Or like I did this thing, which worked out really well, where um, uh, someone had emailed to ask if I had any, because I love quotations so much. I have like a quotation newsletter where I send out a quotation every day, a happiness quotation. Um, said, do you have any good ideas for funeral readings or memorial readings? Because I have to like, I have to, um, like, uh, there's, I have to go to a funeral and I need readings. And I was like, this is a great question for everyone. Like, and so it was like a whole community project people would send in their favorites and then I made a PDF and then it's just something that people can ask for. Like, do you want the funeral, the readings from for funerals? From, and when you need that, it's like, it's really helpful to get like a 20 page document. That's, and it, and it's from everybody. Or like we did a thing on Spotify about, you know how, like when you're feeling blue, most people have like a song that they, there's like their go-to song to make themselves cheer up. Right. So we asked people to like submit their songs and it's like, now it's like, dozens and dozens and dozens of hours on Spotify of everybody's like, this is my go-to song. So it's like the happiest, most energizing playlist. Um, but everybody built it together. Um, and so that's how did they make those submissions uh, by email email or voicemail. Mm -hmm. Um, and then we had a meetup. We've only had one meetup. It it was really, it was great, but it was like, um, it's, it's a thing to pull that off. Like, where do you do it? How do you organize it? How do you, get people to RSVP. So we need to work on that. We've done a couple live events. Those are super fun. Uh, we want to do more of those because we do feel like that's like the great community thing. Cause there's like, everybody's there together. Um, and, uh, and Alyssa, my sister has another a podcast of her own and they have a very fat, ha- um, active Facebook group, happier in Hollywood. We have not done that with happier, but I know that that's something that, um, a lot that can be really, really effective too. So, but it's again, it's like everybody would everybody would have a different answer for like depending on what they're interested in, what they're good at, what their audience is interested in, what their content is. Um, but it's a good question, which is, how do you turn fans into a community? And now, uh, it's like fun to talk about. Is the manifesto written out, sort of like Jerry Maguire? Mm-hmm. So you have yeah. how long yeah. is it? It's like fifteen items, I think. Now. Oh, okay. So it's it's really like the fifteen commandments of sorts. Yeah. A manifesto, I feel like a manifesto has to be one page. Yeah, it's right. like a resume. Yeah, you gotta. It, part of it is like to keep it um, succinct. Yeah, no, it's like fifteen one-liners. Have you shared it anywhere? We're a banter. That's one of ours. Um. Uh. Yeah. Yeah. No, I gave a whole talk about it. Oh, you did. Oh, okay, content. great. No, it's public. If anybody wants it, just email me and I'll send you my podcasting, my, my podcast manifesto. I oh, love okay. a manifesto. I have a habits manifesto, a have happiness manifesto. I love these frameworks. I like distilling things. It's like, mm-hmm. it's like for me, that's like so much. It's like some people like to write haiku. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to write manifestos. Now, I don't want to destroy your inbox, which is entirely possible. Uh, maybe you have some system for avoiding 
inbox deluge, but it, when you said people can email you, if they wanted to find or, or read the Habit Manifesto or the Podcasting Manifesto, how would you suggest they find it? I mean, certainly they could search your name and then fill in the blank manifesto on Google or elsewhere, but right. Or uh, on my website, they're, they're, they're there on my website and the resources if they wanted that. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Uh, So Uh, you, you mentioned quotations. Uh, So so if if you could have a giant billboard anywhere, metaphorically speaking, right. Getting a message out to millions Mm. or billions of people. So you can put a good question. Yeah. So it could be, it could be, a few words. It could be a paragraph. It doesn't really matter. It could be some, a saying of yours, or it could be another quote uh, from, uh, from someone else. What might you put on it? Well, I think of everything that I have ever written, if it was going to be a quote for me, of everything that I have ever written, there's clearly one sentence that is the sentence that, that is the most meaningful to people. And that is, the days are long, but the years are short. Hmm. Um, that is, I feel like for many people, that is like the most help. That, that's like the thing that's quoted to, back to me the most is, like and it's that. just like this idea that, you know, getting, sometimes getting from morning to night feels interminable, but then you're like, well, where, where did 2017 go? Like, right. do I even remember March, 2017? Like what even happened? Like it just flashed by. Mm-hmm. So to remember that, um, to remember that. And if you, are there any quotes that you use as uh, routinely for, I have certain quotes that I revisit mm-hmm. often or that I have mm. in my home somewhere that I will see them often. Are, are there any quotes that you might put on a billboard for yourself? Um, one is, uh, from Robert Louis Stevenson, there is no duty we so underrate as the duty of being happy, mm. um, which I think is great. And, um, then there's one from Thomas Merton and I'm not sure I'm going to get it, um, a hundred percent accurate, but he said, essentially, I am finally coming to the conclusion that my highest ambition is to be what I already am. Oh, I like that. Mm-hmm. I like that a lot. I may not have that word perfect, but it's, no, that's, the just, yeah. that's the gist of it. Yeah. The, uh, how did you find an interest? And, uh, we only have, you know, we'll take a few more minutes, but in, in koans and these types mm. of thought provoking statements or questions, perhaps without an answer, right? That's, that's kind of part of the exercise in, in some respects. But I mean, for instance, one of my favorite quotes, which is, is certainly at times or most of the time quite a head scratcher, which is roomy, which is that which you seek is seeking you. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, well, that's very much like one of my favorite Cohen's, which is um, Samuel Johnson quoting a Spanish proverb um, that said, he who would find the wealth of the Indies must bring the wealth of the Indies with him. Same, mm. same idea. So right. yes. Why, yes, why, very wh- powerful. What, which, what itch, do those scratch for you or, or how did you, why the interest? I guess I like this sort of escape from logic or like the way the, they're usually like the perfection of the idea or like the, the elusiveness of it. Like right now, one of my, one of my weird obsessions that I'm into is color. I'm like really, really obsessed with color. And I have a ton of color Cohen's that are Cohen's that are only about color. And, um, like, uh, uh, oh, oh, here's one that somebody actually said to me in real life. Um, wait, what, what, what was it? it? Okay. She said, I walked into a store and I said, I want to buy this blue chair. And the clerk said, oh, everybody says it's blue, but that chair is actually brown. 
is the chair blue or brown? <laughs> yeah. Um, right. What color do you use to paint an object that's transparent? Hmm. How, what, why the interesting well, color? How did this uh, come yeah. about? I have oh so the way it came about was so on the Happier podcast Alyssa and I we always have a try this at home which is like a small concrete thing that you can do in your everyday life to make yourself happier, and so we we our, our try this at home one week was to pick a signature color and ironically neither Alyssa nor I has ever been able to pick a signature color but we put it out there hey, anyway. You said sinister. Signature. Oh, signature. signature. Like your signature <laughs> Sorry. Color. Got it. Got it. Uh, yeah, not a sinister color. But um, and so and 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 I thought this was sort of a fun, playful thing. And again, it's a way to tap into like the power of the moment and your environment. Um, and but we got so many impassioned, delighted um, uh, responses from people, and also like so many pictures. And I mean, there were crazy stories, like a woman who said that. Her mother had really been into the color red and also kind of the Southwest uh, look that when she died, they got a red Southwest designed urn for her ashes. I mean, these are people really taking it all the way. And it just got me thinking about color. And, you know, as I said before, I'm not a visual person. I can only get to the visual through words. And so I started reading more and more about color. It turns out there's like this giant literature about color. Uh, there's a French historian of color who's slowly working his way. He had a book called Black. He had a book called Green. He had a book called Blue. Red just came out this year. I'm <laughs> eagerly awaiting yellow. Um, there, and then all these kind of crazy, interesting philosophical books about it. Uh, anyway, um, once I got into it, it's just like I couldn't stop. Hmm. Um, and now I'm doing some like weird little thing, writing kind of like a weird little book called My Color Pilgrimage, which I have no idea what that's even going to be, but I couldn't help myself. I just had to do it. Um, I felt that compulsion again to write it. And so part of it is, um, is these koans, like, could a painting include a light yellow that's lighter than a dark white? Can light yellow be light? Can light yellow be lighter than dark white? Oh, I like that. Yeah. Um, uh, Oh, here's a here's an interesting question. Now, this is like color questions. Do you think dragons are green or red? I uh, well, I would probably go with green personally. In interesting. That is historically the color of dragons. I would always say red. So, but this mm. is like, what color are unicorns? They can be any color we want because they don't really exist. But it's interesting. Like, I'm like, to me, it's like, of course they're red. Like, I'm like, I didn't even know that was a question that anybody would have. Um, <laughs> do you believe in, like, how can a color be achromatic? Black, white, and gray are considered achromatic colors. They're non-color colors. How can you have a non-color color? Is black a color? I say yes, black is a color. Hmm. But a lot of people say no. So anyway. Um, so on the theme of black, just since you're going down this rabbit hole, I have a recommendation for yes. a, a very short and exceptionally weird book that may Ooh. that may have a few kind. that may have a few paragraphs you would fall in love with but it's yes. something you can read in an afternoon really easily it's called Impraise of Shadows Ooh and okay it's, wrote it's a, it I'm writing this an, down right it's, now it's an essay on Japanese aesthetics by June Oh I read that yeah, this is Tanizaki. the book that opens with no he it, it opens with his like um brilliant uh invocation of the uh, like the outhouse that's right. Yeah, and yes, talk talks about that. how Japanese yeah. aesthetics, or yeah. and also color, right? The use of gold were designed to reflect light in very dim environments. So, contemporary 
in contemporary design, when you have traditional Japanese color palettes in brightly lit rooms, it doesn't work and it seems very gaudy, uh, just as one point, right? Uh, hence the title, In Praise of Shadows. Uh, well, I'm so glad that you mentioned it because I read it and remembered thinking there's a lot about that book that is very deeply weird. Yeah. Um, but I wasn't obsessed with color at the time, so I didn't read it through the lens of color. And so now I want to go back and reread it because it is yeah. a very it's a very it's a controversial book in many ways. Um, super super weird. Yeah. Definitely. Super weird. And, um, but, but, you know, sometimes you read something and you're just not in the same place to like, I bet now I would read it with a whole different eye. So I'm so glad that you mentioned it because, um, I will be checking it out of the library tomorrow. I'm going to the library tomorrow. And, uh, yes, I know exactly where it is because I checked, checked it out before. <laughs> I know they have a copy. Um, so that's great. Yeah. Now, the Japanese are interesting because they have four basic colors. Um, uh, black, white, and a particular blue and a particular red. That's like their core color, which is, which yeah. is not, yeah, it's a different, different approach. Well, what's Japan. I remember that was one of the first places I realized my first extended trip abroad was in Japan as an exchange student for a year. So I really went from zero to 60 very, very quickly in terms wow. of culture shock. And wow. I remember one of the conversations that just made my mind sort of tilt its head like a confused Labrador was <laughs> the fact that the, uh, the, well, what we would consider the green go signal at a sidewalk, Japanese people call blue, even yeah. though they have a separate word for green. And I would ask them... But only recently. That's a very recent introduction into their vocabulary. That's part of why. I don't know when... came in recently. Yeah, I don't know when it was introduced, but the i mean they have a clear delineation if you look at it on paper you could say this is green this is blue and then you would have agreement and then you look at the crosswalk sign and you say it's green and they say no you mean it's blue and it was really a trip for me uh just a mental trip to realize how socially conditioned our, even our perception of color is, right? Which you would expect well, is sensory input converted by these rods and cones at the back of the eye into this objective fill-in-the-blank color. Uh, but it's well, just not the case, it doesn't seem. In Russia, they have a word, just like we have a word for light red is pink, and we don't really say things are light red. We would call it pink. They have a word like that for light blue. They mm. have a whole separate word for it. And, um, and it's interesting and it actually, when you look at the brain function of people who speak Russian and their color identification, it's different because when, when you have a distinction like that built into your language, um, it does change the way at the speed, particularly with which you could perceive these things. So it is, it's very like, and I just was reading today that the word orange, um, like didn't exist until or literally oranges came into the marketplace, um, in Europe. Because they just said they just said yellow red. They didn't have like a special word for it because mm. there just was. I guess there just wasn't enough need for it. And then when the oranges came, they were like, "Oh, we're gonna." Have, and that's why it's called orange because it's literally from oranges. Because that's when they began to identify the color. Hmm. Um, yeah. So there's all sorts of crazy co color history thing. What I'm gonna do with this, I don't know. But yeah. So that you're um, that Japanese. Uh, that it's it's a very different way of perceiving color. I'll give you um, a, one more recommendation that is going to hmm. make sense to like a, a fraction of 1% of people out there, but that's okay. <laughs> that's uh, my which, favorite kind. Which is uh, look, look into the experimentalists who are creating hardware devices uh, for sensory substitution experiments. So that if, if people want to hear 
colors or feel sight. There are hardware devices that have been created to help people uh, experience this uh, in various experimental designs. Uh, my friend Ed Cook, who's a, a memory champion and very fascinating guy, has done a lot of experimentation with this, but the, that could feed into your rabbit hole of, of color exploration. So it's basically hardware synesthesia? That's right. Yeah, it's using computers and hardware to uh, enable synesthesia in mm. non-synesthetes. Person, mm. so to speak uh, i'm curious though on a completely separate note what what try this at home has had the strongest response to date of any that you've done with your audience oh my gosh um so many i don't know i mean we've or, been going to or, more than two years so or any that come to mind that had huge uh responses oh, uh. from your audiences um well this 18 for 2018 people are really responding to that has been super fun um what are some other um big ones um uh oh, i'm just going blank that's okay uh, I, well, uh we just there's just so many um you know one you know one thing though it's we didn't do it as a try this at home but it's something that we keep hearing about over and over and over again it's something that really people respond to so elizabeth and i well we're sisters and um our parents live in kansas city and um my mother made this suggestion she was like you know you know how it is and everybody has remarked on this that like if you see somebody every day you have tons to talk about with them but if you see people like once every six months it's like how are you? Fine. How are you? Like, it's hard to make conversation. Right. So my mother said, let's just email each other with just like the boring details of everyday life. And we instantly realized that this was a genius idea. And so in our family, my nuclear, my, you know, my, 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 my sister and my parents, um, uh, the four of us, we will send these periodic updates, like say maybe every four or five days that just says update. That's the title. And it's just like the most boring thing. It's like my mother will be like, I'm getting my hair colored later today. Or I'll be like, Eleanor's really annoyed because Barnaby tracks snow all over her bed. You know, it, it's just like the most mundane things are like, oh, I'm leaving tomorrow for London. It should be really fun. I'm seeing my friend Delia. Do you remember her? She was my roommate after college. Um, and, uh, and there's no, it's okay to be boring. That is the motto of update. And, um, but what we find is that it dramatically increases our feeling of connection with each other because when uh. you know that mundane stuff, and then also it's good if there's like kids, because my parents can say, Oh, I heard that you had a Halloween party at school or like, they know what's going on in a much more kind of day-to-day -day way. And so many people have said, and some people do this as like a group text, um, I like that. You know, That's pe cool. People have set up private groups on Facebook. People do it all different ways. But the idea is it's better to have frequent, boring, mundane communications than to save it up for like when there's something big to report because that's not how relationships work. Relationships really thrive on really being in touch with people. And, and also nobody ever responds to update. So there's no guilt. There's no like, oh, now I have to like ha craft a witty response or like now I have to do one too. It's just like you just – put it out there and usually nobody even responds because <laughs> it's like, let's keep this easy so we can do it. You know, mm -hmm. I think sometimes people want to have like, let's start some beautiful thing where we like write handwritten letters on parchment and mail it to each other. You know, and I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> um, so that's something that's interesting because like it worked that. really well for us. And we mm -hmm. thought it was sort of our idiosyncratic family, but like over time, like that's the thing where people are like, tell me again, what was that thing with update? Cause I want to do that. That's something mm -hmm. that really did. I love it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so Two more questions for you. Uh, this is, uh, I suppose, pretty self, uh, 
self-explanatory. When you feel overwhelmed or unfocused or feel like you've lost your focus temporarily, what do you do? Oh, I reread a children's book. For is, sure. is there a go-to? Oh, I get a million go-tos. But like, in, in fact, like Harry Potter, I was like, I have to hold back Harry Potter. Do not let myself reread it, reread it, reread it. I have to hold it for a moment of need. And so when I got the edits back from my editor for my book better than before, it was like, I'm like, and now I'm going to start rereading Harry Potter. I need it now. This is the time because <laughs> I'm pro- processing all of this stuff. Um, but no, I have like a thousand books, you know, Edward Eager, Elizabeth Enright, I mean, Philip Pullman. I mean, I got a million. Um, I got a huge library full, but I love rereading. I love rereading adult books, too. I reread adult books all the time. But um, there's something very comforting about children's books, um, particularly C.S. Lewis. I mean, how many times have I read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? I mean, easily could be 40, could be more. Wow. Um, but yeah, because it's just like, oh, I'm like, oh, yeah, I need. And in fact, it's almost a tell. It's funny that you ask that because it's almost like sometimes I know I'm feeling overwhelmed without really. I'm like, oh, I'm reading um, The Dark is Rising by Susan Cooper again. I wonder if I'm feeling a little bit stressed out. It's sometimes mm-hmm. like my my reading choice um, it, it tells me more about my emotional state than I'm even aware of. <laughs> That's your divining rod. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Like my psychiatrist. Do you read the entire book? If you're, for instance, you get your edits back on your own book, do you just need? a minimum effective dose, a, a little, <laughs> like a, like a vein hit of, you know, two chapters yeah. and you're good. Or do you end up reading the whole book? How, how does that typically run its course? Um, it kind of depends sometimes, you know, and some of these books are so short, you can practically read the whole thing. You know, if you've read it before, if you've read it 40 times before, you can whip through that thing pretty fast. Um, it depends, you know, sometimes I'll just re- reread like my favorite, a-, a couple of favorite parts that are comforting, you know, or if it's a really good book or a book that I haven't read in a long time, I might read the whole thing. Um, some books are complicated, you know, and, um, but, uh, um, but I, I do try to be careful not to read them so often that I wear them out. Mm-hmm. Um, cause you can do that with a book and kind of lose the pleasure of it cause it's too familiar. Um, I kind of, I, I, I wore out Raul Dahl early. Um, so I don't read, I don't reread Raul Dahl very much now cause I'm like, I just know his books so well that they kind of don't have any pleasure for me anymore. What is a short children's or young adult book that you would recommend almost everybody give a shot something that could be read in a day or a weekend. I would say the midnight Fox by Mm. Betsy Byers. That's like a middle grade book. Are you talking Mm. about like a middle grade book or more like a YA book? That's Uh, a book, but it is a masterpiece that anybody, anybody male or female adult or child. It is, it's just a perfect book. Great. Uh, It's funny. It's thoughtful. It's got great characters. Um, it's, uh, it's a great book. So the Midnight Fox, and then for YA for young adult, what would you? What would your nom- nomination be? YA gets trickier. Um, what is a YA? Uh, One day this pain will be useful to you. Is an amazing character in a beautifully written book. I would highly recommend that. Um, uh, let's see. What is another one? I mean, then there are ones that everybody knows about, like Wonder. That is that is an amazing book. Um, and but maybe that's even middle grade. I don't know what they consider that. Um, um, 
I would say the Golden Compass for sure. The it book is that such a good book. Earlier. It's yeah. so unbelievably good, and the characters are so unbelievably compelling, and the world is so un- unbelievably interesting, and it's like nothing you've ever read before, and it's like very, it's like connected to the deepest core of thinking and philosophy. Um, that is a towering masterpiece. Yeah, so I would say the Golden Compass by Phil Philip Pullman. It's but it's scary, and it's challenging. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's not, it's not, it's not you to read out loud to your six year old for sure. <laughs> especially, yeah. Especially the later volumes. But, yeah, uh, yeah. What adult books, book or books have you reread the most? Ooh, or, or reread or reread a lot? Because you mentioned there are some adult books that you've reread a lot. Mm, like, you know, probably like, um, I've reread a lot of nonfiction, like sure. a book that I love that I have read so many times is Memories, Dreams, Reflections by Carl Jung, um, Into the Wild by John Krakauer, uh, Selected Essays by George Orwell, or there's, I have my favorite essays that I will go read. Some of them are in like the short, short collections, some aren't. Um, um, uh, Samuel Johnson essays I read and reread a lot. I love Samuel Johnson. Um, I read it. I love Virginia Woolf. She kind of blows my head open. So I, it's, it's hard for me to reread it. I'll often reread her nonfiction. Same thing with Flannery O'Connor. Flannery O'Connor's fiction is so kind of, um, it really is so mind blowing that I almost can't take it. I have to be in a very particular emotional, <laughs> I can reread something like wise blood, but I reread her nonfiction a lot because I love her nonfiction. I love her voice. Um, and it's a lot easier to take. So I have a, a for, for rereading, I probably reread nonfiction a lot. And then I love like Robertson Davies, um, Jane Austen. Sometimes if I want to reread a novel, I'll read something like that. Wow. So you, you have an, you have a very, very impressive level of output in terms of creation in the world. How many hours a week or day or a month, however you want to slice it, do you spend reading? You know, I don't know. And that is a great question because every week on Facebook, I post a picture of the books that I've read that week and I don't have any kind of, I don't do any editorializing or any explanation but if I've read it, I put a picture of it. And I, if I don't like a book, I won't, don't finish it. So if you know, if so, if, if I finished it, it means I liked it well enough to finish it. And every week I have read books, but I feel like I spend no time reading. And I'm constantly thinking to myself, how can I find more time to read? How can I find more time to go to the library? How can I find more time to like, you know, I have 457 books on my library list in my phone. How I just need to make more time to read. And yet I must have reading. And then I do a lot of research. I'm always taking notes off things I've read. So, so to me, it is a mystery. And I know I should do time logging, like Laura Vanderkam says, and like really write it down like a lawyer and figure out where is my time? Where, when am I reading? Um, Sounds stressful to me. <laughs> yeah, I'm just like, I don't know. I, I really, I don't know how much time I read. It probably varies tremendously. Oh, but here's a great tip that somebody told me. And this has really changed my reading. She said to me that, um, if you're a person who travels a lot, um, for work as Tim, you and I both do, her rule is she only reads for pleasure when she's traveling for work. So Mm. from the minute that she gets to the airport to the minute, but she'll work in the hotel room to the minute that she gets to the hotel, she will only read for fun on the plane in the airport. There's no expectation that she's going to work. And to me, this has dramatically improved, um, my experience of travel. And I've gotten an amazing amount of reading done because it wasn't even like I was getting that much work done, but I felt like I should be working. So, for sure. but now I'm just, 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm just like, you know what? Like I read um, Manhattan Beach, Jennifer Egan. Like I had a flight, um, like a flight from London. Um, Plus I had all the time in Heathrow. I'm like, I read the whole book from the time that I left to the time that I landed. I think I only had a few chapters left by the time because I just read the whole time. It's so satisfying. Yeah. Um, and, and now I like traveling so much better because I really look forward to having that really concentrated reading time. And uh, and I wasn't getting much work done anyway. I mean, honestly, I just wasn't. I was, you know, kind of I, 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 so I think some people can really, really work on airplanes and if you do, then maybe you want to do that because it's a really good place for you to work. But I was not getting quality work done on an airplane. <laughs> well, we could talk for hours and hours and hours, I, uh, I, but we'll, we'll save that for round two. Uh, is there anything that you would like to – well, first and foremost, where can people learn more about you, what you're up to, where would you like them to say hi, and so on? Uh, if you go to GretchenRubin.com, that's R-U-B-I-N.com, um, there's all sorts of information, resources, videos, contact info. If you contact me through my blog, it really does come straight through to me. Um, you can see my podcast, um, learn more about my books. Like, There's way more there than you would ever want to know. Read about color. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Go to GretchenRubin.com. Or the, or the podcast is called Happier with Gretchen Rubin if you're looking for a podcast. Perfect. And is there anything you would like to close with? Any parting comments, suggestions, uh, next steps, try this at home, anything that people can can do to change their behavior, change their thoughts, whatever you want to wrap up with. Any final well, can, thoughts? Can I do instead, can I ask you a question? Yes, of course. What is your, do you know what your tendency is? What do you think your tendency is? <laughs> okay. So I right. was hoping that you would mention it and we moved on. Before yeah, you... well, I didn't want to make okay. it, you know, I, I feel like this entire podcast is pretty self-indulgent. And so I was hoping, I, I wasn't going to take it uh, there, but I will say. Well, I think everybody's going to want to hear what you have to say. Yeah. <laughs> so I definitely, uh, it was questioner, right? Or Questioning was that the was that one of them? Questioner is the ones that they'll meet inner expectations, but if if they think they make sense, they'll meet an expectation. But if they think it doesn't make sense, if it's arbitrary or inefficient, yeah, um, they push back. I think that's me. And mm. uh, what is the now? I'm curious to know what are the downsides of that, and how can one mitigate against the downsides? The downsides for questioners is um, sometimes they can drain and overwhelm people with their questioning. Like everybody else is like, <laughs> why are we still talking about this? And you're like, but what about this? And what about this? And what about this? So to the questioner, this is like, of course, we can't move forward until all these questions are answered, because why would we waste our time and our energy if we don't think it's the right thing to do? But to other people, like if you're in a team or something, sometimes people you know, start getting exasperated and exhausted because they feel like it's too many questions. Um, some questioners um, experience analysis paralysis, which is when they want perfect information. And so it's hard to make a decision or move forward because they're like, it's like, you know, what's the best, um, you know, uh, email service provider, you know, how I could do more and more and more research on that. And like, oh, maybe I should do this. Maybe I should do that. Or, you know, I want to buy a bike. What's the best bike? And so it's, it can be hard. Um, some, some question, my husband's a questioner. He never really experiences this as far as I can tell, but for some questioners, it's something where they need to figure out how to contain that so that they can move forward. Mm -hmm. Um, um, and, uh, and, and funnily enough, often analysis paralysis seems to be about little things, not big things. Like it's like, 
a person might not have any trouble deciding to switch careers, but if they were trying to decide what kind of tent to buy, that could really hold them up. It seems to be like something yeah. like those kinds of things seem to be the, 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 the things that become the stumbling block. And then also for questioners, and this is something really about a, a problem that questioners have with others, is that um, if you're a questioner, they can sometimes be perceived as by others as being um, disrespectful insubordinate, undermining of authority, questioning someone's judgment, um, not a team player. So if you're a questioner child and you say to your teacher, why should I have to memorize the multiplication tables if I can just look it up on my phone just as quickly and more accurately? And the teacher's like, because I say so, or because all 10-year-olds have to do it, or because that's what you do in fourth grade, the questioner's going to be like, well, that's ridiculous, and that's no answer, and I'm not going to do it. And so they're perceived by the child, <laughs> by the teacher as being disrespectful or uncooperative, but to the questioner, this makes perfect sense. Or you get a thin-skinned boss, and the boss is like, your questions make me feel like you're rejecting my authority. You're undermining my judgment. You're not a team player. I don't want to work with you. And it's like, but to the questioner, they're like, well, this is how I add value to the team. I'm, yeah. well, how can I be a better team player? But then to say to everybody, it, this is a crazy idea. Why would we ever do this? It's a big waste of our time. But to the boss, they're like, I don't like that. And so partly it's for questioners to realize how they can ask questions in a way that seem constructive um, rather than making other people feel sort of defensive or exhausted because there's huge value for, to the questioner's questioning. Um, and in some places, some in work environments or whatever, it's very um, rewarded and, uh, you know, and praised. But then some places it's like, hey, listen, we're here to do what corporate says. And it's not interesting for us to hear you complain about why you don't think it's a good idea. Like, get with the program. Stop interrupting the meetings. Like, you're keeping every, you know. So, if you're a questioner, you maybe want to know, well, what kind of environment are you getting into? Because one might suit you better than another. Um, I don't know. Does this resonate with you? Does this strike a chord? Oh yeah, totally. No, I mean, I got in so much trouble in school consistently. I, I was actually put at the bad table in kindergarten, which my teacher then was forgot. It, called bad table? it was called the bad table. I was oh put it. God. Well, you can't do that today. Holy cow. That's oh, crazy. well she did a lot of things you couldn't do today. I mean, she, <laughs> she made me eat soap in front of the class because I refused to learn the alphabet because she never explained why I had to memorize these arbitrary shapes. Uh, until Mrs. Vinsky in first grade then redeemed me and she was amazing and told me I could actually read books if I learned the alphabet and that's all I needed to know. But uh, yeah, M Mrs. Bevan was, was a tough old bitch who was very, very rough on the class. But Can I say that is what's so poignant to me about questioners is like I heard, I heard story after story exactly like the one you told where if somebody had literally taken 10 minutes and sat down with a child and spoken to them in a reasonable way and been like, this is why we're asking you to do this. The child would have been like, cool, I get oh, it. Oh, okay. 10, 10 what seconds. Yeah. It's for somebody to just like explain why this isn't just a big waste of my time. And it's like, all it would take is such like, instead of you having this whole kindergarten experience, which was just, I mean, the simplest response, respectful response to your question would have solved this. It's just to yeah. me so poignant and such a oh, waste. Yeah. Oh, 10, yeah, 10 seconds. I mean, literally, like, Tim, you realize, this is what Mrs. Vinsky said to me. Because by that point, I was really digging in my heels because I was so embittered by the experience with Mrs. Bevan. And Mrs. Vinsky just very calmly said, Tim, do you realize if you learn the alphabet, you can read any book that you want to read? And it's just like my oh. head exploded because I was like, what? Why didn't anybody tell me this? And then I was oh off to the gosh. races. Uh, but yeah, I've... It is, it's also, as like an entrepreneurial type, a lot of 
people I know who are questioners, they're like, I don't want to work for anyone else because I don't, I don't trust anybody's judgment the way I trust my own. If I'm telling myself what to do, I know there's a good reason. If other people are like involved in this, it's hard for me. Like maybe there's a few trusted people that I could rely on, but I don't want to be part of a big system where I'm like, I don't know why people are making these decisions. Like, yeah, I, I want to be the one making the decisions. Yeah, I don't. I, I I can follow decisions as long as I have the latitude to ask questions mm, in such a way good, that I understand yeah, the rationale. But yeah. not everyone responds well to that. So that's that's another thing. Of, but, but but to offset the uh, highly logic uh, oriented framework, uh, I've I've had to, or I haven't had to, but I've chosen to counterbalance that with other things, right? So for instance, one would be, you mentioned the koans as a way to, uh, I'm using my words, not yours, but get a reprieve from logic almost, right? So there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a quote from, I think it's Novalis, I'm not sure if you pronounce it that way, but poetry mm-hmm. heals the wounds inflicted by reason. So I've taken time to try to embrace art forms or entertainment that is not driven by logic as a way to medicate myself so that I'm not purely overweighted in the reasoning faculty. And and I'll give you another example of that. For instance, I interviewed uh, Bozma St. John recently, who's the chief brand officer at Uber. She was at Apple Music and Beats and worked with Spike Lee prior to that. A really incredible woman. And, and she said when I was chatting with her uh, that her advice to her younger self would be do away with pro and con lists by and large. And I asked her why. And she said, it's because usually if you're, if you're creating a pro or and con list, you're either trying to talk yourself out of a bad idea or talk, I'm sorry, talk yourself out of a good idea or talk yourself into a bad idea. Wait, did I get that right? Yeah. Out of a good idea or into a bad idea. And it made so much sense to me. And I realized that, uh, I've, I've spent a lot of my, I've used my power of questioning in many cases to try to impose uh, an analytical framework on things that are actually best answered with a gut reaction, right? It's like if, mm. I, meet, if, I, if I meet somebody and I just get the heebie-jeebies and I really don't, <laughs> if I really don't like them for an unclear reason, this is, this is important, right? Yeah. If, if it's right. like, ah, like ah, they have this weird tick and it bothers me, so what? Like it's, it's very explicit, yeah. but if I get the spider sense going off and I can't pinpoint why that's a hundred times out of a hundred, something that I should have paid attention to. Mm. Uh, So I'm, I'm, for instance, trying to pay more attention to listening to that uh, Mm. as a way to offset maybe the blunt force use of the analytical questioning mind for all situations, which I think has been my default. So that's, yeah. But you know what's interesting is that both you and I have talked, and I had not put my finger on this until you, until I, I heard what you just said, which is like we've both kind of done things to try to explicitly offset very like pronounced parts of our personality. Like you've been trying to use this to offset your questioning side, and I've been trying to use color to bring me into the visual world, which is like hard for me because I'm so verbal. Yeah. And so I've been trying to counter that with by making a study of color. Mm -hmm. So maybe it is kind of this like, um, you know, the opposite of a profound truth is also true and that you need to kind of figure out, well, if you're too yin, how do you achieve your yang? And maybe, um, both of us are trying to get some kind of balance. Um, and I hadn't thought about that, um, as kind of a pattern, but now I'm thinking maybe there's a big lesson here. I want to study how do people do it? It's, it's a pretty, 
it's a pretty subtle thing. I don't, I, yeah. I didn't even realize I was doing it until you said that. Um, but I wonder how other people, how, like how yeah. you offset that. Like if you're too sure. physical, how do you tap into spiritual? Or if you're too um, now focused, how do you, I don't know. Like there's a lot yeah. of things people could try to. Well, I, th- I think that in, uh, you know, we're going to, we're going to go squirrely and all over the place here, but the, <laughs> Uh, I th- from what I've observed is that if someone has the luxury of having achieved some degree of success, and it doesn't mean all, that doesn't mean a lot of success, but they have enough of a toehold in professional success that they don't have to worry about, say, where the rent check is coming from or where the mortgage payment is coming from, and they can put food on the table. At some point, they realize not everybody, but many people realize that the superpower or the strength that enabled them to get there when used in excess creates mm. uh, other problems, right? So mm. like everything in excess becomes its opposite to an extent, right? right? Every medicine becomes poison. Right. Yep. It's like the dose makes the poison. So it's like, okay, great. This, this hyper-analytical OCD focus on whatever has helped you to achieve a certain degree of financial success and this, that, and the other thing, but then put into a context of an intimate relationship, you're driving everybody fucking nuts or whatever, <laughs> right? What, whatever it might be. Right. Yeah. And, you're, and then yeah. you realize, Oh shit, I need to figure out a practice that can offset this, not just dominant, but, uh, almost metastasized tendency to apply this one tool to everything. And, uh, so I've certainly seen that. I mean, that would be kind of, uh, I'll let you, <laughs> I will, I will let you unleash your own deep dive on this, but yeah. I, it's certainly something that I've seen a lot of people trying to figure out how can I take what comes unnaturally to me that I recognize as necessary and create a practice of some type. So for me, the last thing, if you had told the Tim of 20 years ago that I would be reading poetry before bed. I mean, he would have like vomited on himself and nonetheless, like here I am and I, I find it incredibly relaxing for whatever reason. I, and I, I and part of me is totally okay with not understanding the, uh-huh. the how of it or the why, but f- reading something like the Tao Te Ching, which is not necessarily designated as poetry or Hafez or Rumi, in the beginning of the day and at the end of the day to bookend sort of to tur- right before I turn on my hyper analytical mind. And then when I want to turn off my hyper analytical mind, which has historically caused quite a bit of insomnia, mm-hmm. uh, dosing myself with something I never would have used in the past, I find really, really helpful. Well, it's interesting because I have this, like I said, I have this, uh, it's called Moment of Happiness Newsletter, where every day I send out uh, like a, a, a quotation about happiness or human nature. Um, and a lot of people say, oh, they like it because it's, I, I think for you, like you're you're seeking out poetry, but for some people, and you can even go with like the Poetry Foundation, I think, like we'll send you an email with a poem every day if you want that. But this is like, people like to have that practice of some kind of transcendent reading first thing in the morning or right before bed where it's like it's curated. It's something that's like more beautifully expressed or a more interesting idea than you're going to read in the newspaper or whatever. It's some kind of timeless thing that for whatever reason is going to put your brain in a different place um, as you start your day or end your day. And I think it's, I think it's a great, um, it's a great thing. I'm a big believer in like things, just like have something be a small thing that you can take in and kind of let fill your mind. Um, 
in in a bite sized piece rather than yeah. thinking, okay, I got to sit down and read odes to you know, um, or wait, intimations of immortality, and get this thing done, or I'm working my way through Paradise Lost, and you know, yeah. you're like, okay, that's okay, one page a day, just do one page a day, and then that'll be enough to kind of reset your brain in a, in a positive way. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, we, we could we could keep going, but I mean, if if I've learned anything about creating let me let me rephrase that uh developing habits that i have somehow failed to develop in the past uh do less than you think you can i think is <laughs> the biggest takeaway for me it's like oh you think you can go to the gym for an hour a day and that's your resolution to go for five mm. days a week try like 10 minutes a session mm. three days a week and that so that your pass fail mark is low enough that you don't abandon ship because you feel like you've failed, especially if you're a competitive person as, as I am, uh, or with poetry. It's like, okay, don't choose a poet that has 10 page poems. Like go with someone like, you know, Robert ha- Frost, right. Robert Frost or Hafez or Hafez, depending on how you want to say it. And the gift, right? So these are one page or like 50 word poems that happen to very often be hilarious. Start there and make it easy. And what I found is like, if you want to, for me at least, it's like, if you want to do things that are really big, uh, this is something new for me, certainly, but it, it doesn't, the path being hard doesn't indicate that you're doing something virtuous always, right? Like Mm. if, if, in my case, at least it's like, okay, if I am really loath to do, I'll make something up, but it's like lower leg, ankle prehabilitation. So I don't get injured later doing skiing or whatever. It's boring as fuck. It's really part of my French, but it's like, it's really monotonous and not interesting at all. But if I'm, if I tell myself, okay, I'm going to spend 30 to 60 seconds every other day, like before I brush my teeth doing that. And that's it. That's enough. That's a pass. Then uh, I'm setting the hurdle so low that I'm more inclined to do it. Uh, and then I can always do extra credit, but if I set the pass fail mark too high, I'm never going to do it in the first place because, or I'll put it off for whatever reason. So Hmm. in any case, yeah, diatribe complete. I write a lot. That's like the whole thing in my book better than before, which is all about habit change. That's like a, like a big theme is like start small, start big. Like, how do you think about that? How do you, how do you, if you have a habit like that, how might you think, how might you analyze yourself to know what's going to work for you? Cause that's a, that's a perfect example of the kind of habit that it's like, it can be in a way it's not hard in a way it's extremely hard. And like, how do you get yourself to succeed? There's like, yeah, that's what the, just yeah. like, how yeah. can I make this easier? How can I make this easier yes. is a question. Yeah, that's I, so called- it's, that's the whole inspiration for better than before. I was just yeah. like, how, what do people do? Like what, what, and it turns out there's 21 strategies people use and, um, some work better for some people and some work better for others. And some don't work for some people at, you know, some people, they don't, some don't work at all. And some, you can use it sometimes in your life and not at other times in your life, but it's good to know the whole, uh, panoply of them because then you can, you can say, okay, these three sound good. Cause you just, you said pairing, which is doing it before you brush your teeth. Yep. That's what I would call the strategy of pairing. Scheduling, which is putting it on the schedule. Like I have an idea of when I'm going to do this. And um, safeguards, which is the strategy of thinking, how might I screw up? How might I abandon this habit? I'm going to think about what is likely to make me not do it. And I'm going to figure out a way to solve for that. And you're like, if I make this too much, I'm going to put it off and I do it. I'm going to make 
so I'm knowing, taking into account how I might fail. I'm going to figure out a way to do it so I don't fail. So again, it's like, it's, it's, it's not that hard when you know what to do. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's can be very challenging, if you, especially if you do it in a way that's not right for you. Yeah. For me, it's, you know, make it easy to pass. Mm-hmm. And yeah. make it really expensive to not do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. it's, and it's like if if I can be shamed by, let's say, uh, a friend of mine who's going to bust my chops endlessly if I do it, or somehow try to embarrass me in front of other friends because we're on a group text where I committed to A, B, and C, <laughs> and it's already on the calendar, so I have the sunk cost of having paid for lessons in A, B, and C, and someone is going to show up or be on Skype at a given hour that social accountability will be very helpful and so on and so forth. So it's uh, BJ Fogg has done some really cool stuff in this space mm. as well, FOGG. But uh, Gretchen... He's a big believer in small steps. He is, yeah. The micro steps, yeah. flossing those front teeth as he would have somebody do. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's interesting that some people don't like a small. They're, they're, they want to go bigger but go home. They're not interested in incremental change. Yeah. They like radical, they like big things. And again, it's not that there's one way that's right or one way that's wrong. It's just whatever works for you. If small works for you, that's great. If small is boring to you and you're not going to stick to it, do something big and bold. It's like, you know, there's a lot of ways to do this. It just depends. There's no magic one-size-fits-all solution, I think. It's just whatever works for us as individuals. Yeah, for sure. Well, yes, it is not one-size-fits-all, but part of the... I suppose excitement, if you can look at it that way, is figuring out which which tools <laughs> to put in your toolkit you know, over time. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, I appreciate the experimental nature that you bring to bear in your own life and then in your work that you share with the world. So thank you for that. And thank you so much for the time today also. Oh, it's so much fun to talk to you. I so appreciate it. And uh, for everybody listening, you can find links to everything we have discussed in the show notes, along with the show notes for every other episode at tim.blog forward slash podcast. And until next time, as always, thank you for listening. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? And would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out, and just drop in your email, and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by FreshBooks. Man, oh man, do a lot of listeners of this podcast and readers of mine love FreshBooks to the extent that I ended up meeting with the CEO not very long ago. Why are they so popular? Well, they are the number one cloud accounting software designed exclusively for self-employed professionals. That's many of you. And used by more than 10 million people. You can send invoices, track your time, and get paid very, very quickly, which suits the needs of a lot of freelancers, a lot of entrepreneurs, and beyond. You can take pictures of receipts. You can link your credit card and debit card. So all the things you buy automatically appear in your FreshBooks. 
in the right category. So on and so forth makes taxes easy, makes invoices easy, makes your life easier. And also, in fact, I would recommend a PDF. Uh, they didn't ask me to read this part, by the way. They put together a PDF a while back uh, called Breaking the Time Barrier, subtitle How to Unlock Your True Earning Potential. So you can search for Breaking the Time Barrier. A lot of people ask me, how can I get a four-hour work week with a service business? And the story in that ebook, it's PDF, is the short answer. It's really, really good. So I think you should also check that out. So Breaking the Time Barrier, check it out. But also, why not test out FreshBooks? Claim your 30-day unrestricted free trial at freshbooks.com forward slash Tim and enter Tim Ferriss, two R's and two S's, in the how did you hear about us section. That sounds <laughs> like we're going to get very little tracking. That's a lot of work. But just go to freshbooks.com forward slash Tim and try it out because it is a very good product and I think you will find it simplifies your life. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Shure, S-H-U-R-E, the company behind some of my favorite microphones and headphones. In fact, this podcast has been recorded since day one, effectively, in all of the live interviews with Shure microphones, whether it is the SM58s, which look like stage mics, which Brian Callen introduced me to, or the table-mounted SM7Bs. And most recently, I've been testing one of their headphones, SE846. Rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? These are now my favorite in-ear headphones, and I always use them when I'm at coffee shops or when I'm traveling. Shure earphones have been famous for decades now with professional musicians, and their wireless sound isolating earphones are truly incredible. The reason that I've doubled down on these earphones specifically is because when I use these on my laptop, as one example, I can keep the volume at, say, 1 out of 10 and hear things perfectly, whereas when I use normal earbuds, I'm at easily 7 or 8 out of 10 just to drown out external noise, and I become very, very concerned with hearing loss. I've seen a lot of my friends losing their hearing because they're blasting their ears with normal earbuds on their phones and laptops and so on. So I am using this as an investment in my own hearing, among other things, and they're very, very comfortable. The SE846, which I mentioned, the sound-isolating earphones, feature a groundbreaking low-pass filter that delivers extended high-end clarity and unparalleled low-end performance. So check it out. Visit Shure.com, that's S-H-U-R-E.com, forward slash Tim. Use the code TIM at checkout. That's capital T-I-M as a special offer for listeners of this show. You can receive a $100 discount on the SE846 headphones. This offer will only be available until the end of January 2018. Let's take a look. Again, that's sure.com forward slash Tim for $100 off. 